Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'm your co-host, Junior Bruce, coming to your earbuds, telling you all about what we are discussing on Cinemodities today, the great transcontinental road race. After the world crash of 79, we felt that we don't have enough violence, violence, violence since the Terminator series. (laughs) (laughs) I had maybe like two more sentences planned, but I have to stop and laugh there because when I was watching this, when we decided to discuss this movie, I don't know if we'll get into how we cut something else for this one, um, but when I was thinking about it, I was watching it, enjoying Death Race 2000, and I was kind of like, man, it's been a while since we've had like a good, solid action film on Cinemodities, right? And then I looked at the spreadsheet to remind myself, and I'm like, oh, that's right. We did a month on the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> that's more sci-fi action than it is just like straight up like action action. True. Uh, that came to mind as well. And, you know, there have been things since the Terminator which might be considered action. Um, but there's always been some other kind of weirdness to it that we really haven't talked about. You know, I think of Charlie's Angels full throttle with the fight scenes. The loss of physics and reality totally does not make me think that's an action movie. No. Uh, Mortal Engines, with how much nonsense there is in there, I don't think of that as action. But I, I think it's, you know, it's been a while since we have really done, like, an action-action film, and I'm kind of excited for it. Yeah, this is uh, certainly something very different from what we normally do. Oh, yeah. And uh, for good reason, as I'm sure we'll discuss, because... I just said a few moments ago that I don't know if we're going to discuss it, but let's just get to it. We had something on our docket for this month. Remember the Paul Bartel series, movies he's directed. We actually had something as a palate cleanser, because if you remember, or if you, I don't know, can look at a calendar, there are not only five Mondays in March, but there's also our two-year extravaganza episode. So six episodes of Cinemodities we're throwing out there this month. Zach and I kind of felt the need that maybe in the middle of these five for Paul Bartel, we would throw something out that's related to him, but not exactly a movie he wrote, directed, anything like that. And it was just this last week that Zach and I started talking. I think Zach was the one who pitched the idea first and foremost that said, you know, can we pull from another Paul Bartel that's, you know, not just going to be us talking about Paul Bartel in a movie for a scene, right? (laughs) Is that a good way to summarize it? (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. And so Death Race 2000 kind of came along that way. We, we gave up something else that, um, from my knowledge, I haven't seen it, Chopping Mall, which is very kind of action or gore-based. And, you know, I, I was fine with it at first when I hadn't seen Death Race 2000. I was like, I'll watch it. We'll, we'll both watch it. We'll check it out. And I'm, I'm glad we're doing it. I think that wraps back around to, like I said, we have a great kind of straight-up action film. And... Uh, like I said, I don't know if we've ever done anything like this before. Well, that's the weird thing about this movie. Is that, like, as I was watching it, I was trying to figure out what genre it is. And I know Wikipedia has it listed as a science fiction sports film. Yes. And that feels wrong. That feels yeah. like a wrong genre. I, that's some of the issues that I had. Because when I watch this movie, I think 
satire for sure dystopian satire to some extent and yeah there's sports aspects to it but uh, I, I, this is going to have to be something we say even further. Mary Warrenov does did not know how to drive a car when this movie was filmed. Like her car was being pulled by yep. a tow truck for all of her scenes in the driver's seat. So can you really call this a sports film? But I think it's also like yeah, of course there's that aspect of it. But it's it's a Roger Corman film. Like that's that's the thing. Like this is not a Paul Bartel film mm-hmm. in the way that it's known to like film culture. It's a Roger Corman just like this helped put him on the map. Like in a real like of course Roger Corman was around before this, but this was one of those like super duper successes. And it's like I don't want to delve too far into the movie right right now, but I think a lot of it too is that like this movie was really ahead of its time in that there really wasn't anything that was just so oh god, like I I you know, one part of me wants to call this an exploitation film. Mm, but okay. it's too but it's too self-aware. Like it's maybe one of the first meta films ever created. Mm, a movie that's that's inherently self-aware of how goofy it is without <laughs> like but it doesn't do that stupid like Guardians of the Galaxy thing where oh man, here's the tree guy. Isn't he crazy? Yeah. You have you have all these crazy things in this movie, yet they're played a hundred percent straight, and that's the, the satirical aspect of it. Absolutely, you know, and and not just the violence that we're going to talk about and all that kind of, you know, that pushing the envelope aspect, but even kind of just in the the way this movie's structured, I, I got a lot of satirical elements from it. Um, and I think before we go into examples, of course, because there's so many in this movie, I, I want to go back to, and I think it's a really great place to start, this is a Roger Corman production. Oh, yeah. and And I feel... That you can really tell it's a Roger Corman production. <laughs> well, that's well. I, this is the thing. I, I would. I've only seen a handful of Corman's films, and most. And of course, the scenes are showing in some instances. Like there's like what the uh, like some of the the scenes where like whether it be the quote unquote motel room that's like a giant just like oh god an office floor level and it's yeah. just <laughs> thousands of fluorescent lights um, when we first see. Frankenstein, and once again, it's just like it's a warehouse with a bunch mm-hmm. of fluorescent lighting. But the weird thing though is that, like, you think about this movie, it came out in 1975. Yep. It came out right as like cinema was changing. Like, this is the same era, is like the same year as Jaws. This is two years before Star Wars. And like, you have a, like, the first thing I noticed is like in the first shots we get is you have a matte painting. And of course, matte paintings had been around long before this, but matte paintings didn't. Be, eh, matte paintings did not really become like really understood by film audiences until Star Wars. And yet, of course, it's not as convincing as it could be. But I would imagine in 1975, nobody looked at this as like a low budget schlock film. I think we look at it now as that. But mm-hmm. at the time, this was, I would imagine, if you were sitting to see this like on like a like a Saturday night, like at like eleven PM midnight, this probably blew your mind. That's a really interesting point. That's something that I, I think I've said before on Cinemodities that I have an issue with kind of putting myself in the mindset of not only, you know, when I was younger, but even more so before I was born. Because like I said, when I watch it, it's a Corman movie and I feel I can really tell. But Somebody seeing this and the state of cinema back in 1975, that's a good idea to think about why this was so successful, that it, it reached kind of heights that nothing else really had. Or or maybe, you know, it, it grew upon the things that had previously. 
Yeah, and I think it's like okay, because obviously this film this film has been people have pulled from this. Like if it weren't for this, you wouldn't have Mad Max. Like there's so much of Mad Max that was pulled oh, out of this. Yeah. And and I before you go on to make your point, Zach, I, I this is gonna be quick. Okay. I know you're gonna love it. Okay. But not only have people who make movies pulled from this. Oh jeez. At the beginning of the Buckethead song, Isle of Dead, we get a sample of the discussion between Annie and Frankenstein about removing his mask. Even Buckethead uses this movie to sample for his songs. See, don't you ever take off that mask? No. Don't you know about my face? I've heard stories. Nobody's ever seen it, have they? Except my other navigators. And they're all dead. Well, yeah, I'm pumping my fists in the air right now. (laughs) I do that even when we're not recording. When I hear Buckethead, I'm alone. I pump my fists. <laughs> is he okay now? Wasn't he sick for the longest time? He he still is sick. Uh, Buck, Buckethead, very unfortunately, has a heart condition that leads to heart palpitations that could be deadly. But he is still alive. He doesn't tour as much anymore because his concerts get pretty rowdy. And if you've ever listened to Buckethead's music, you know he's playing at like a thousand beats per second. Um, so if you ever see him on tour... Go see him. It's going to be the last times you can ever see him. And it's, it's been a bummer. I haven't seen him in like three, four years. Sucks. Bummer. Um, but no, I think... <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. My, I, love, my... I love when Zach gives his Zach's answer. Zach repeats a word I said with total emotion and passion. Just monotone. Bummer. And then moves on. It's great. <laughs> I, I love it at least. I hope the audience loves it. <laughs> yes, that's a or, or the, the other best Zach answer. Rob goes through an entire like three minute diatribe and I, and I conclude it with Sure. Moving on. (laughs) Uh. But no, you're absolutely right. Especially um, something that stood out to me when I was researching this movie to get back to your point with what has drawn on this. The Wikipedia page, their little see also section is filled with stuff. Like you said, Mad Max, Death Sport, Rollerball, The Hunger Games, Future Sport. There's stuff I've never even heard of. Oh, the Running Man's on here. Yeah, yeah, and you're yeah I ab- that too. Yep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This movie kind of inspired such a a grand, not always satirical, but just this kind of, you know, uh, there's a race that's going on, there's violence involved, and it's become kind of like a story structure that people know and, and love to some extent. Well, yeah, because I think uh, that's the thing that this has been around now for almost 50 years. And so much is pulling from it in so many different directions because you do have like that stuff, like the Hunger Games, like the, this fact. Ugh, there's not a lot of Hunger Games stuff in here. That's not. But I guess you have the idea of the president, and you have people commit. Uh, oh God, doing a, some sort of competition where yeah, there's some, life and death consequences. Violence, some violence that um, you know the Hunger Games. Of course, they're doing it to make their province or district better off or whatever. They don't have that aspect here, but it's the same idea of, you know, it's it's a publicized event. That's where I see the connection. Yeah. And then you even have some of the aspects, too, where, like, you have the uh, – forget, like, the narrative, but you have the random acts of violence. Like, the random mm-hmm. over-the-top acts. 
like we have a point where like a man gets um what's the word uh knifed in the groin and basically there's like an explosion of what is supposed to be blood it's red paint coming yeah. out of his groin and you have things like that the random violence which at the time yes you did have that sort of stuff like i think we've mentioned it like uh el topo and jordorowski's films but when it came to i don't even want to call uh corman mainstream american culture at the time but you it was this was somewhat trailblazing in a way that nobody recognized at the time. Yeah, yeah, certainly it did well, as I think we've mentioned. Um, I was only able to find loose sources talking about the budget and the the box office, or, or not even the box office, but the money this has made. But this this definitely, you know, like you said earlier, helped put Roger Corman on the map. And uh, it seems like it helped Paul Bartel, even though he didn't like the fact that he did this type of movie. Well, that's the because again, I, I like Rob. I did some research on this, and I know there's a story about how Paul Bartel wanted to make this much more satirical, put more jokes in there, a lot more winking at the audience. And Corman's the one that's like, "We need more tits and ass and violence," which is exactly what Corman did for that entire time period. We need two much- naked women getting a massage and then fighting with each other. That that's a Corman thing through and through. <laughs> but when they get up, they have to make sure that their groins are covered because we can't. We don't want to get into too much trouble now. Um, yeah, I love that. I, 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 from the top up, the women don't care at all that they're exposed. From the waist below, like come on, we have to show some decency here. It's like it's it's the small things like that that just tickle me. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. When because Matilda the Hun, I think, gets super angry, and as she, in the same motion, she gets up to yell at uh, Calamity Jane, Mary Warren of. She grabs her towel at the same time, and I'm like, "Yep, I noticed that too." <laughs> yeah, there's, there's small things like that where you can't, you really can't look the other way. Uh, cause I'm, I'm trying to see, okay, because this came out in April, and Jaws didn't come out until June. Yep. So this was even before Jaws. Yeah, if, if anybody can remember or uh, acknowledge that that time existed, it, it did in cinema. <laughs> yeah, because this is the time between, like, right before this, you have like your your mainstream films before Jaws were uh, The Godfather and The Exorcist. And private parts, of course. <laughs> of course, Rob. <laughs> private parts. I guess before we get any further, I want you to keep making your point, but I do want to say with our history of Paul Bartel, this is the follow-up. He doesn't direct anything as the as the you know lead director between private parts and this, which always blows my mind. Well, I kind of I get that because Paul Bart not Paul Bartel. Corman was there. Like Foreman God, why can't I say Corman? Roger Corman was the <laughs> The father of basically modern cinema of the 80s and 90s, because mm-hmm. all these filmmakers all worked with him, at, worked for him at some point, like Jimmy C. Uh, the list goes on and on. And there's too many to name. And you get where someone like Paul Bartel, you have private parts, the studio basically punch your movie. Yep. And what am I going to do? Okay, I go work. Roger Corman's weird enough. He'll let me do. He'll let me do. I can get away with stuff as long as I come in on time and under budget. Yep, and and they kind of already uh, maybe not know knew each other, but they had a connection because Private Parts was produced by Gene Corman, Roger's brother. Yeah, so that makes sense. And and again, like we were saying, apparently there was that sort of bristling between the two. Uh, Paul Bartel being dead now for twenty years, and Corman still alive. He's ninety something years old. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's crazy when I think about how old Roger Corman is. <laughs> it's, it's all that that tits and ass, man. It's all that just on the screen. It, it keeps you alive. <laughs> but it's funny enough. Um, I remember in college, the cinema professors. I remember somebody was doing a project, and they they want they want information about Roger Corman, 
And one of them said that they knew somebody who worked a lot with Roger Corman, and they said he was a very nasty man. Ooh, really? Like, not I guess maybe not nasty, but he was very bristly. Like, he, he sure. was not someone – it was hard to get along with him. Sure, and you are – you know, if you ever have those second, third-hand stories, you're dealing with the filter of whoever is telling them. But I'm, I'm just shocked at that fact of, you know, whenever I hear Roger Corman talk, it's, it's not the image I get, you know? <laughs> but, of course, he's a businessman, so he would have that kind of, you know, I'm going to be as kind and clear as possible to make sure I get the money. But then once he gets the money, all bets are off. Well, that's the thing. We've seen him interviewed, like, what was that, in the Fantastic Four documentary. Yep. And when you think of Roger Corman, like Rob said, you like this guy who created how many decades worth of schlock? In quasi exploitation films, and you see him, he's just this like mild mannered white man, and it's like like you kind of expect the equivalent of a uh, like John Peters from the the Superman documentary, where it's like it's this guy who wants a head in a jar with spider legs, and he wants he wants uh, polar bears that fight Superman. Yeah. Like Wouldn't it you be cool if a car has two machine guns and a giant like <laughs> Bowie knife and it goes through a dude's crotch because he's not paying attention. And it's like, that's what you imagine, but it yeah. doesn't come off that way. It's insane. Yeah. And that's the, like, that's, I guess that thing of like, you, it's so unsuspecting, mm-hmm. which is fine. Like, Amber, this is not meant to be any sort of criticism of, of Roger Corman. He clearly no, knows I think, what he's doing. I think Zach and I both love him. He's made some great schlock that has influenced schlock that we love today. <laughs> but that's a question I have though. Is death race 2000 schlock? Ooh, so I'm glad you asked that question because I would say no. I think that for all we've already said, and a quote I do want to talk about from Paul Bartel, this movie mixes enough of the the gore and the action and the gratuitous, you know, uh, violence with satirical elements, and that's why I think it works so well for me because it's not just schlock. It's it's kind of schlock, maybe uh, smoothed out by someone like Paul Bartel. Yes, and I I agree with you because this movie is like the first time I watched this a couple like like a week or so ago I was kind of blown away by it I was I was shocked at how like oh my god where has this been my entire life and then sure. like, as you watch it you know you've seen other things in media that I pulled from it mm-hmm. but as I rewatched it again today for this recording I felt it felt very shallow like there was no deeper meaning to a lot of the stuff like once you've experienced the gags. Mm. In, in, the, in the little, I don't want to say jokes, but like the vignettes that are set up, like, you know, Rob's going to get into the uh, geriatrics, like euthanasia day. Euthanasia day, yes. Like, it feels like, even though that's great, there's nothing deeper than just that joke, it feels. Like, okay, yeah. I get what they're, I know what they're going for, and it's very surface level. And as I was rewatching it, not that I was bored, but it's like, okay, there's no, there's nothing new for, new, eh, nothing new from here to appreciate. Like, even some of the sets, like, because everything is... Uh, the non-driving stuff is so low budget. Oh, like we said, like God, yeah. we we have the giant, what the, the, oh God, it's very, oddly enough, it's very similar to our sequence from That's My Boy with everybody getting massages and with just one giant room. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I didn't even think of that, but you're absolutely right. They're all lined up on the massage tables. And yeah. then you got, you know, like uh, Sylvester Stallone standing over Annie, Frankenstein's navigator and and all that stuff. Yeah, you're right. And that's the sort of thing where, like, I, it, this is a, I guess we have to give some sort of plot description because we're already, what, almost like a half an hour into this and we haven't explained what this movie's really about in any direct way. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even said that it's not the Jason Statham one. <laughs> no, we said, no, Rob, those are different movies. It's Death Race 2000. That's just plain old Death Race. Good. I mean, I hope, I hope that that 
people understand that, but uh, I feel not not our audience. This is one of the times I think our audience is smart enough to realize this. But honestly, I think for most people, if we told them we were talking about Death Race 2000, they'd be like, I haven't seen Death Race 1 through 1999. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I love that joke. <laughs> All right. Oh. So, but yeah, I, I want to kind of circle around to like just the overall like like the sure. weird sort of place this has like in, in like ranking not ranking it but kind of like labeling it under a certain genre but so rob do you want to explain to our audience what the plot of this film is yeah so so it's uh it, like we said it's a corman it's a lean mean just straight up storytelling machine with some great action but the gist is that every year i i think i've gathered from the film there is the transcontinental road race in which drivers that have qualified for this race, five of them, through, uh, I think they call it provincials, which I guess are like regional tournaments and stuff like that. They make it to this race and they have to drive across the continent from New York to Los Angeles, gathering points along the way. The question becomes, how do they gather points? By killing innocent bystanders. <laughs> I, I don't have it all written down because it's it's so glorious. Uh, the the whole scene in the movie where we have a news reporter discussing who's worth what points. The standout is the end of it where infants are worth 70 and the highest point value is the elderly over 75. They're worth 100 points. Women are still worth 10 points more than men in all age brackets. But teenagers... Now rack up 40 points, and toddlers under 12 now rate a big 70 points. The big score, anyone, any sex, over 75 years old, has been upped to 100 points. But we basically have that as the setup, that our five drivers, uh, each car is fitted with a driver and a navigator. They have to drive across country killing innocent bystanders, gaining points to win this race. And the backdrop of this is that the world kind of economy has fallen, and this has kind of become the opiate of the masses for America, that the president, as we know him, Mr. President, sets up this race to appease humanity, give him something to watch and rally behind. And I think we'll get into more of the different racers, you know, Frankenstein being kind of the agent of the government to keep this race going, where other racers are actually invested in it and want to win, like Joe Viterbo. Sorry, Joe, the machine gun Viterbo, I believe is his nickname, um, played by Sylvester Stallone. But really, that's that's kind of the glory of this, is that the premise is given to us in the first eight minutes, and... We kind of have to be fed as we get some action and some storytelling that there is a resistance. There's a group uh, led by Thomasina Paine, <laughs> the descendant of Thomas Paine from the American Revolution, who is trying to upend the president and upend this race because it's leading to murder and things like that. Yeah, that, I think that's a very uh, appropriate. Uh, well done, Rob. Well done. That was uh, that was rather concise because that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know I said earlier that I felt like there, like this is a very shallow film, and I don't. That's probably not fair because when Rob, when Rob was describing it, it got me thinking. Is that there is a lot going on in this film? It is but, under the surface. I I think that you know shallow is kind of how I felt about it too. But when I've thought about it more, like not while watching it, 
it's more of the the impact that this race has on the people of America that I'm really interested about. And I think that's not something fully fleshed out by the movie, but not to its detriment. It gives us just enough for me to be interested in it. Well, like the best way I think I can describe this movie is if it imagine you had an Olympic sized swimming pool, but it was only like three inches deep. Like there's a lot to look at. <laughs> Okay. But, yeah. you, but there's not a lot to submerge yourself into because yes, you do have the whole idea of like you said the the death race is the opiate of the people. Uh, uh, Frankenstein is the people's champion. He's that person that's just there. And the fact that the government, like each year, Frankenstein dies, and they mm-hmm. create all these kind of elaborate macabre reasons as to how he's able to come back to life to make him this weird sort of supernatural hero, or at least sell that he's some sort of supernatural hero, and. You have that stuff though, but like that's just kind of as far as it goes. And you have like there's a lot of world building, but it's kind of like almost facade level, where it's almost like this is a the cinematic equivalent of a map painting. There's so much going on, but when you try to like push your hand through it, it stops because there's no depth to it. And yeah. I, and it really, it really, I, I agree with what you're saying. And for me, and that interest in the other aspects, that's me wanting to think about it more, not the movie letting me think about it more. Yeah, because it does. This feels like a thrill, like in a way, I know this is really uh, archaic to say, but this does feel like a thrill ride. Because the first time you watch this, and like you already said, it's 80 minutes. Like, God bless them. Like, get people in and out as fast as you can. Don't waste your time <laughs> yep. on crap that doesn't matter. And there's always something happening. The film never slows down, and there's just always something unfolding. And there's always new gags. There's always something new and exciting. And there's never a moment where we're kind of just spinning our wheels for no other reason. Mm-hmm. But I, I, that's the thing about it is that I think this movie too was really ahead of its time in that it does create a world that has the potential to be fleshed out. Yeah. And I think that's what the remakes tried to do and failed. <laughs> well, because Jason Statham's not interesting as a character at all. He's just, yeah, he's, he's a guy. Man. Yeah. He's guy. He's guy. He's British guy McFace. British guy McFace. And then even in in the Death Race remake, Jason Statham plays Frankenstein. In the sequels, which are actually prequels to the remake, it's not even played by Jason Statham. It's played by Luke Goss, who I didn't know the name of. But when I I was like, oh, let me see what this dude's done, and I went to his filmography. I saw the picture of him first, and I said, oh, it's Discount Jason Statham. <laughs> I love when Hollywood does that. Off-brand Jason Statham. Sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, because that's... Like, every character in Death Race 2000... Or, let me rephrase that. No character in Death Race 2000 is a guy McFace. Yep, they all have their own personalities. We care about them all to some extent, even though we lose some of them earlier than others. You, When we said that there's five racers in this race that all of America and probably other members of the world are paying attention to, they all have their own sense of flair, and that's important. Sure, because that's, that's the thing, too, that's really – again, this is a very clever movie. Even though it's not deep, it's very clever because mm-hmm. even the one racer who we spend the least amount of time with, what, Nero the Hero. Nero he, the Hero, the uh, the Roman gladiator-esque guy. <laughs> sure. That's, um, his, that's his I shit, know, you know? I, I know. So that's a, if you didn't notice, Sylvester Stallone was the Italian gangster. That I think that goes without saying. Sure. Nero the Hero is the gladiator, dude. <laughs> but the thing about Nero the hero is that he is the guy McFace, 
but he's built to be that way. He's a nobody. And at one point, his navigator even turns around before and he's like, get out of my way. You're blocking me from my fans. And she's like, you can, oh, I guess I've never seen a has or, or a nobody before. Yep. And yep. it's like, that's perfect. Because it's again, it gives you it gives you everything you need to know about the character. No sort of like just superficial character development. This is a character that doesn't matter. He's here as fodder. Nothing, nothing beyond that. And that's yeah. a sort of just razor sharp, efficient storytelling that Corman and the people he hired were known for. We don't waste time on things that don't matter. And when we do have to give them some attention, we keep it as just to the point as humanly possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I really appreciated that uh, specifically on my second watch through with this film, because the first time I watched it, certainly I was much more. Um, focusing on the the violence and you know the kind of that being the opiate of the masses, but it, it kind of got down to me or hit me more on the second viewing that this is truly a, a depiction of what reality TV is today, because when people watch reality TV, you know maybe in the two thousands even up to now twenty twenty. Sure, we want the fights, we want the drama, but we always care about who's fucking who. And and a big part of this is not only are these drivers trying to kill people to finish this race, but they play it, and the, the reporters in this movie play up the fact that the driver and the navigator are in some form of intimate relationship. And that's that extra level I think you're getting at, maybe not that specifically, but that idea that just adds a cleverness to this film where it really is the full latch of just the person at home watching this thing. You got violence, you got sex, you got fast cars. What more could you ask for? Yeah, this film, again, you're, you're very spot on. It's that it does a, it did a, I'm, this is the thing I was wondering though. Like, yes, the, the media aspect, like even like the announcer or the most pronounced announcer. And at this point, I would imagine Rob's inserted a couple of clips of him. Junior is, Bruce, you know, Don Steele is great in this role. I love him as just oh, yeah. constantly smiling, just screaming at the microphone. The one scene where he's like, it looks like uh, Matilda the Hun has fallen to the. Correction, everything <laughs> is fine. <laughs> sure, and that's again, it's that's where I wonder about this movie because we do also have the female reporter who says, like, everybody's her best friend yeah, and, 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 when she introduces them. Yes, <laughs> and then we have like the Walter Cronkite, uh, 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 God, newsman, anchorman in the studio who's very matter of fact and has the voice of God. And he's and, always trying to, when he's killing time, he's given like details about history of things like that, you know? Oh, oh, it's, 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 it's all fleshed out. And I, I don't know if you picked up on it, Zach. I picked up it on my second viewing when I was really trying to pay attention more to the dialogue than the spectacle. But that female reporter who, um, who always says, you know, they were dear friends of mine. I think she only says it once at the start, but her name is Grace Pander. Yes, yes. And I love the fact that she's yep. the one who she does the interview. There's a scene in this movie where they interview the the widow, the current new widow of the first person killed in this race. And it's perfect. She's pandering to the audience and doing what they want or what the president thinks they want. It's just uh, it's it's cleverness coming at us from all angles. <laughs> it is. It's a very it is a very clever movie though, but I think that's where like I picked up on Grace Pander the first time. Okay. And I guess I knew what I was getting involved with with this. So, I guess if you like, if you listen to this conversation, then you watch it. Maybe you'll be a little less inclined to like this because you're expecting that razor sharp wit. 
<laughs> and I think I think I was I don't want to say I was prepared for because I was kind of blown away initially. But like when you think about it, like compared to things like eating Raul, and to again, I don't think private parts is as um what's the word uh, in a script sort of way and dialogue is witty and razor sharp as eating Raul and this are. Oh, definitely those damn it, swingers. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair though. Private Parts wasn't trying to be that, so we really can't blame it for not yeah. checking that yeah. box off. Uh, but that's if you don't. If, again, I guess that's the thing with this movie, though. That I keep trying to figure out is is it a movie that at the time was trying to hold? I guess I guess maybe I'm answering my own question. Is that I don't think it was holding up a mirror to society in 1975. Mm-hmm. In a weird way, this film was ahead of its time in kind of holding up a mirror to society. I, I would agree. I would agree because um, I think this might be a good time to talk. What I found a little bit was about the disagreement between Paul Bartel and Roger Corman. Because like we said, Roger Corman, the, the TNA, the gratuitous violence, all that stuff, that's that schlock aspect, sure. Paul Bartel has never really been that way. And it's kind of weird if you know Paul Bartel, the rest of his canon, and or oeuvre, I should say, and you see this. Because this is much unlike anything else he's ever done. And what I found, which was surprising to me, was... So, Paul Bartel said in an interview once, Roger and I had an essential disagreement over comedy. He took out a lot of the comedy scenes. He may have been right and was probably more objective. And he goes on to say, Most of my guilty pleasures in this film were ripped out by the roots. Before the film ever saw the light of day and substituted with crushed heads and blood squibs. Uh, Paul Bartel goes on to say that some things uh, did find their way into the script. Uh, He specifically mentions probably the thing that made me laugh the most in the movie. He says, there is a joke about the French wrecking our economy and telephone system that I still find amusing. And and I think it's kind of, to get to your answer, it's ahead of its time in holding a mirror to society. It seems to me that it did so in kind of a lightning in a bottle way. But that's, uh, yes, I, I agree with you. And, but like, okay, in my research for this episode, I went and listened to a, I went on YouTube and I really couldn't find any sort of like retrospective on this, which oh, is, wow. I would imagine a lot of the, the, the current generation of YouTube, the people that make videos, they hear death race. And like we've said, they think Jason Statham. Yeah. You know what and, I found when I looked on YouTube for this? What? The Cinema Sins video. Oh, yeah, I saw that, too. We're going to oh, talk yeah. about that later, because I actually well, I... fucking sat through it, and I oh, have issues you? with it, as I do with all of Cinema Sins, but I want to save that for later. That is not okay. important in the grand scheme of this conversation. But yeah, I get well, what you're saying, is that that's where it kind of exists, on YouTube, at least. Yeah, because on podcast on the Apple Podcasts, I went and looked it up, and I listened to, like, oh, God, I, I tried... I had to go through three podcasts and it wasn't until the third one. I found one of substance. The first one was just kind of like, I, I don't think they've ever, the people involved have never spoken to another human being before. So it was like baby's <laughs> first conversation. I'm like, okay, this, this is, <laughs> okay. this isn't for me. And then the other one, cause like, like I've said, when I go look for a uh, weird movie stuff, like when we're like opinions, I don't, I don't go to the NPR podcast. Cause it's like, or NPR ask. Cause I don't care for that. Like, a guy, what's the uh, the nose up film criticism? I want people sure. like just like the people that will that think about weird movies. And so I found a second podcast, and it had like a weird movie podcast name. And I'm not joking for the first, I, I I barely was through the first like ten minutes of it, and they kept comparing, uh, uh what's his name, El Presidente to Donald Trump. 
And it's like oh, God. And, 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 the it, president. The president has like two minutes of screen time in this movie. There's nothing. I, there's no substance of him it, well, to compare it, it to get, anything. It gets better. And I, I'm going to quote a line of dialogue one of the people says, and they okay. all agree with it. At least Adolf Hitler was successful at what he did compared to Donald Trump. Oh and, I'm, and I'm like, where is this applicable to a Death Race 2000 discussion? Like, I don't care if you love or hate Trump. I don't care. But that conversation is not for a Death Race 2000 convers- like discussion. Yeah, that's just, uh, God. I think we said it before on here. I know at least I've said it, is that just because you drop Trump's name, it doesn't give you notoriety or comedy points. Stop thinking that it does. It's It's useless. Yeah, that's and like I, I gave up at that point, and I even left a one star review, and I'm like, I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I, I never, I never leave one star reviews. My philosophy is if I have nothing nice to say, I just walk away. But mm-hmm. like, come on, like I came for a death race discussion. You don't talk about it at all, and when you do, you automatically bring it to Trump, and it's and it's the not even clever Trump criticism. It's the Trump is Hitler thing, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like Jeez, enough. I thought. I thought the president was such an absent character in Death Race 2000 that it was going to be revealed that he was, like, not even a real person at the end, you know? Like, there's well, so little for him to do. There's nothing to compare him to. That's, I think that's kind of the, the joke at the end. I think you're kind of right in a way because think about it. They take him out by literally just driving into the platform that he's standing on. Yeah, like, yeah. it's the most anticlimactic assassination plot you could ever imagine. And then the literal next scene after that is... Uh, president frankenstein yeah yeah if you watch this movie you know before listening to this conversation if you've seen this movie and you think the president is the bad guy you miss the point sylvester stallone is the bad guy just because he's a competitor to some extent yep yep and that's and that's the thing about this movie like the third podcast i found they, they were a roger corman retrospective podcast and they were discussing cool. a bunch of his films and they were the one that had the most like uh sub- substantive conversation they were talking about things like rob like I, there's one thing that they brought up in their discussion that i i don't want to discuss it now because i hope rob brings it up as a grievance because okay. it is a hundred percent a uh not it's it's tangential, but it's very similar to a beep boop trash can dilemma. Oh, okay, okay. So it's not the same thing, but it's in the same realm of those sort of complaints yeah, where it's yeah. not important, but it's if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but no, like that's the thing about this movie. So this movie, and I know even before we started recording, I was telling Rob that like this movie was released on Blu-ray like ten years ago, and it's never been re-released since. Yeah. And that's the weird thing about this is that like this is a great movie. It's very clever, even almost fifty years later. It's still poignant by what we've been mm-hmm. saying. Yet, outside of Cinema Sins, and all that's going to do is turn people off. All people are going like as soon as Cinema Sins covers a movie, I would imagine like the IMDb rating or the Rotten Tomato score goes down by like it's like ten percent. Oh my god! Okay, That's yeah, I, I want. I do want to save that for later. I do. We do have to talk about Cinema Sins video a little bit because I have so much problems, not only with them, but how they discussed this movie. But I don't want to. I don't want to do that yet. I actually want to talk about this movie first because it sure. deserves it. Oh god. Okay. So, <laughs> so now I'm just now I'm just angry about Cinema Sins as I as I usually am. So so I, I I'm glad I got to bring up already the fact that there did there was some discrepancy between. Roger Corman, the producer that he was, and Paul Bartel as the young director um, that he was when he filmed this movie. Um, it, it works kind of as a weird, like I said, lightning in a bottle, or maybe more just amalgamation of both of those things, which is why I appreciate it so much. 
Um, but something that I really wanted to bring up once again that we already mentioned was how I got really interested in the the kind of the the, the under the surface, the the impact this race has on our people, the people of America, the citizens that are watching this. Because we don't follow any of them. We follow our racers and the government and the reporters for the whole movie until we get to the one probably my favorite scene in the whole movie where the the Frankenstein fan meets Frankenstein because she's like, I'm going to sacrifice myself to you and this is going to make my death mean something. And uh, that scene stood out to me both times because not only did it get at something the movie wasn't really hinting at any earlier, any later, but I love the fact that it's hammering home the idea that so many people find this transcontinental road race, this just gratuitous violence, the norm. Because we get a great line of dialogue where that young woman, oh, played by Paul Bartel's sister, by the way. I don't know if you looked that up. But Wendy Bartel. So Wendy Bartel, that's her. She talks to David Carradine when he's in his full Frankenstein getup, the gimp with the cape. And she says, like, I, I'm, I wanted to meet you because it's going to make my sacrifice mean something. And he's like, why? Why are you doing this? Why do you love me? Because I kill people. And she says, scoring isn't killing people. I wanted to meet you, Mr. Frankenstein. I wanted you to know who I am so it would have meaning. I don't understand. So what would have meaning? We love you, Mr. Frankenstein. I know just saying it doesn't mean much. Why do you love me? Because I kill people? Scoring isn't killing, Mr. Frankenstein. It's part of the race. You're a national hero, and we want you to know we're with you 100%. And that that really hit hard with me because that shows exactly how much that people just find this to be the norm of society, right? All right, Rob's convincing me otherwise that there's a lot of death in this film. Rob, Rob is proving me wrong, folks. What? Okay, um, okay. Go and I'm glad, it. and I'm glad, and I'm glad. I'm not, um, because that sequence, both that and the point where he eventually does run her over, and uh, the navigator asks him, like, why'd you do that? It's like, or like, why would she do that? And he gives the reason. And yeah, no, that sort of stuff is neat. And I wish, and like, that's the thing, though, is. I want more of that because that's the sort of stuff we want in 2020 is that understanding of just being like of, of the fanaticism, trying to rationalize people that are so obsessed, not just with the like, it's funny, as I was watching that initially or watching this initially and we got to that sequence, not that it reminded me of like stuff nowadays, but it reminds me of like, I would imagine people have probably seen headlines like uh, 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 Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has like some form of cancer and people are actually volunteering like their own lungs and their own heart to save her. And I get it. Politics versus Death Race 2000s, two separate things, though. But, like, I can't imagine in 1975 if you went around and asked people, like, on the streets being like, would you give up, like, your own life to keep a Supreme Court justice that you've never met before alive? I would imagine 99.9% of people, and forget even Supreme Court justice, a celebrity you've never met before. Like, even sure. if you like them, a celebrity you've never met before, I would imagine most people would tell you no. And that's a sort of like profound thing in this movie that I, I don't know if I can give the movie credit for. Because I do think a lot of things in this film, whether because maybe this film helped shape the culture, and that's the reason why like it took oh not took, but why even almost 50 years later we're still feeling it having that sort of like effect. 
mm. is that it helped shape the culture more than it reflected the culture. Ah, that's a good way to put it. I see what you're saying. That's interesting. And and once again, yes, I am definitely, you know, I, I, I'll be the first to admit that I'm really looking into this movie deeper than anything that's probably there. But, you know, that's that's just how I how I do. But you're right. That's a good sense of, you know, it was kind of ahead of its time once again in that way. Yeah. And, I, and that's the thing about those. Like, but I, that's like I, in the podcast I listened to, they were talking to about a bunch of things. And they're talking about the fact that, like, oh, they have TVs that are standard definition in the year 2000. They have like these cars. They have like the weird sort of like what? Uh, a mo- oh, God, not a monorail, but like in the matte paint, it's the little monorail oh. that goes flying by. Yeah, the um, one little, uh, you can tell it's animated, the green train thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They even highlight the fact that, like, apparently, uh, women's bushes, they don't go away either. Who would have thought after 1980, people would still have hair down there? Um, <laughs> they, they, it's actually, it's a really funny podcast. I have to share it with Rob after this. Okay, it was not, right and also, it was two men, two men and a woman, and clear, it was nice. There was no sexual tension. It was very, uh, it was very refreshing when it comes to podcasts. What? My mouth is agape. I didn't, I thought we established that could never exist. <laughs> I know. Um... That's the thing, though, with this movie. Is that, like, there's a lot of things. Like, this movie, for a movie that was going to take, it was supposed to take place 25 years in the future. And I know a lot of people look at that, like, with 2001 Space Odyssey and it taking place in 1968. And a lot of things, like, that got right. It got wrong. Uh, video messaging, yet, obviously, uh, what's the word? Uh, oh, God, what would that be called? Trans, trans, what would you call it? It's not transgalactic. Is that what it be? What we call it? space, tra- commercial space travel. Sure. Like, yeah, we, yeah. We, we, we didn't get that sort of stuff yet. But, it's the idea, like, this film got so many things, it, oh god, predicted so many things that there's no way it could have predicted. And that's kind of my question, is that, like, our, like obviously with any sort of art, we're, there's a part of it, when it comes to just our analysis, we're going to project what we want to see upon the film. And that's why I wonder, though, because there are things, like, um, even... The part where we have uh, Calamity Jane and we have the landmine and the way she like we have the suspense of her backing up oh, like like <laughs> missing it every single time until eventually after like the fourth time she has to back up she she hits it and it goes off like I don't know about you but that sequence is more suspenseful than most thrillers of the last twenty years that one like what twenty second mark. You are absolutely. I can. I totally agree with you. I felt that way both times I watched it. More so the first because I didn't know what was going to happen. Because when they set up that scene, uh, when you know she like knocks off the the motorbike resistance people or whatever, and we know that the landmine is there, I'm thinking, oh, she's going to run into it. She's going to die. That that's how she goes out in this movie. But she misses it. She backs up and misses it again. She goes forward and misses it again. And I'm starting to think, like, oh, my God, like, is, she, is Mary Warnov going to survive through this thing and still be a contender, like, to fight Frankenstein at the end? But then she lands into it. And I'm like, it, it's it's kind of, you know what it made me think of is the um, the the earned jump scare from The Thing, where where um, he, they have the fake hand and they're doing the blood test to figure out they're shocking the blood. Because the first time you see it, you're like, oh, my God, okay, something's going to jump up. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And then it does happen. And it's like, we don't get filmmaking that suspenseful anymore. Yeah, that's that's like that's the stuff in this movie that like I think it transcends the schlock because yep. like, I, I have to ask too, like, would you even consider this an exploitation film? Like, is that like by today's standards? No, like that's the weird thing. Though, is I feel like in yeah. 1975, this would have been exploitation. 
Um, but you're right nowadays, in saying it's nowadays, not. it's it's not what we think of. It's not going as extreme enough to be an exploitation film for us. Yeah, that's that's why I that's what's so weird about this film is I feel like this film has evolved. Despite the fact that it was a relatively low budget film, it wasn't given any sort of what's the word a special attention mm-hmm. compared to other things at that time. But that's that's I'm having such a hard time discussing that because it is this is a profound film, yet it's only profound after the after the fact. Yeah, you're you're kind of making me realize that now because I wasn't thinking about it in that lens. But you're absolutely right. It it's real interesting in that respect. You know, not only fitting into, say, Corman or Bartel's filmography, of course, this being the Paul Bartel series, but just as a film and the whole landscape of cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, and clearly it did have that effect because so much is pulled from that. Because I was even thinking about the, uh, oh God, there's a South Park episode of the last few years where they have all the, uh, it's, it's one of the more recent seasons where it's they make fun of, uh, I think, Uber and Lyft. And I think Timmy has the, uh, Oh God, the the car sharing, ride sharing service, okay. and you have like Elon Musk. You have at the very end they do like a wacky racers parody, but essentially it's Death Race. Oh, interesting. And that's the yeah. sort of stuff that like I get it. South Park obviously parodies, lampoons, everything. Yeah, yeah. But it's the idea that like I did not connect those two until like I've I've seen that episode countless times over the years because it's just always on TV. And it's funny for the most part, but it's not until now, how many years later, that I finally realized, oh, wait, this is a Death Race parody. And I would imagine the majority of people that have seen that have no idea what Death Race 2000 is and how it connects and how that episode is pulling so much from it. You know, when you bring that up, the the comedic aspect, which is something I wasn't thinking of, because like I said earlier, I was so I've been so grounded in this movie being like actiony and full fledged action. I'm I'm getting some thoughts that this is pretty similar, not similar, but maybe inspired in some way, Rat Race, the cross-country road trip oh. where John John Lovitz gets a Nazi car at one point. Oh. Every, everybody has to travel across the country to get to this this landmark for, for a victory type of reason. And sure, they're very different movies. I haven't seen Rat Race. This might be the weirdest thing anybody said in the history of recorded <laughs> media, but I feel bad that I haven't seen Rat Race recently. Uh, but... I'm kind of thinking of that. Uh, the comedic aspect has is just kind of forming in my mind now. That's not something I've been th- thinking about at all with this. But you're right. Yeah, I think this film definitely had some level of just like – prof- I think it's – it's reached a point maybe in the culture where it's – I guess maybe it's even like a very unique level in that it's like – it's a film that is part of the fabric of pop culture mm-hmm. yet – it's not ubiquitous enough to pick it out. Like, whereas like you, like you see somebody using a laser sword, you're going right to star Wars. Sure. You see somebody move in slow motion in a movie. It's the matrix. Mm -hmm. And you can point to these things being like, Oh, this influence, like clearly their inspiration was a nod to this or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I think death race 2000 came out so ahead of the curve that you had to, you have all these movies again, Mad Max. Like you don't. I know. I think in even interviews, George Miller has said that like there wouldn't be a Mad Max series if it weren't for this. And okay. I think Mad Max obviously is the sober 
interpretation of the Death Race 2000 world. Sure, sure. more more the first Mad Max. I know the later the, the sequels get more and more bizarre about like uh, this dystopia. No, there's no, no. <laughs> Fury Road is is so restrained. <laughs> well, that's it. Like that's the things. Like the first Mad Max in this feel very similar because even it's the whole yeah. idea of cranking up the shots and like like shoot, as if the cars are going like they're moving in almost an unnatural way. Mm-hmm. And I've I don't think I've ever gotten into this. I know Rob and I have talked about doing a Mad Max series one day, but it's the it's the idea like when I watched Mad Max for the first time, that's one of the reasons why I love that film. I've always I'm one of those weird people that I my favorite Mad Max film is the first one. And I know that's the movie that most people like most people don't like because it feels so like out of place compared to the rest of the films. Yeah, I, I think I've said to Zach long time ago, the first one I saw was The Road Warrior. And then when I saw the first one, I was bored to tears. It took me a while to appreciate the first one. I can't. I know we'll cover Mad Max at some point here, but like I have to be reminded. Maybe, oh god, I, I, probably we put it in the spreadsheet. We still don't remember it though. But I have. Okay, I can tell it now. <laughs> and I think about it. in college, they, there was the library, and they only had a handful of DVDs, and okay. one of them was Mad Max. And for some reason, I was just utterly fascinated with that movie. So like once every couple of months, I would just check it out and watch it. No, nice. they didn't have any. They didn't have any of the other movies. This is before I, I, like I've said before, I wasn't torrenting out of the the womb like Rob was, so I was kind of stuck with my physical media, and I just I I've always latched onto that first Mad Max film because it feels like a real world. Like the other ones just feel mm-hmm. like they feel. Like, and I get that's the point. They're supposed to be like isolated, contained stories in that yeah. universe, but that first film, like you do get that sort of stuff, that very unique imagery, like in. With Mad Max, you do get, I guess, it's responsible for kind of really reinvigorating Australian cinema of the uh, for the 80s because that film kind of blew up on a worldwide level. Absolutely. And there's an argument to be made that if it weren't for Death Race 2000, you wouldn't just have a film movement. You wouldn't have the Mad Max series, which yeah. means you wouldn't get George Miller, which means you wouldn't get Mel Gibson. And that's like that's like one of the weird sort of just like threads on this like if you don't if this movie didn't exist you would possibly not have mel gibson the superstar (laughs) yeah that's that's weird to think about but absolutely this kind of plays that i I don't want to say silent inspiration but it's it's almost so far back that it's now removed from how we think about these things yeah and even though yes mad max does its own thing i'm not saying that like one ripped the other one off mad max is very much its own film sure that's you the great de- the great aspect when it comes to fruition correctly the great aspect of inspiration somebody sees something and they can learn how to put their own twist on it to make it new absolutely yeah and that's the sort of stuff that you wish like in today's movies you had we're like okay we're going to pull from this but make it our own mm-hmm. instead of just blatantly using it because it's popular Yep, absolutely. Matt, I, I gotta say, because Mad Max, I, I know it's been in the spreadsheet. I think it's been in the spreadsheet for, for a while. while. Yeah. One of those early series where I, I never scroll up that far because it's stuff. That, it's stuff that we don't that's do. The, that's you know? the OG cinematic content. <laughs> yeah, I think it's what like the first things in the spreadsheet are David Lynch's movies, Kubrick's movies, yep. the Matrix movies, and Mad Max maybe. But uh, now, you know, Mad Max series would be good. Solely for the fact, because I think I've just grown some weird affinity. I love talking about movies that my dad loves, and my dad fucking loves Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> oh, really? He loves that movie. Really? That yeah. one? Yeah, Ooh. that one. Yeah. Ooh, that's, yeah, that's I'm not with him. I'm one. not with him there, but my I don't know. That's one of those things that I think, you know, my dad doesn't know how much uh, 
reviled it feels in the culture but he, he <laughs> that was one of the things he had on like vhs when i was growing up he had taped that off tv he loved it so much well, that was always like, like, oh, I don't want this to become a Mad Max conversation, but it's like the first movie was like, like nobody knew what the first Mad Max was, but it yeah. became like this weird sort of thing that people were kind of like, like they knew about, but they never seen it. And then like when they made Mad Max to the road warrior, they released it in the U S as the road warrior. And you really don't need to see that first film in order to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and, definitely. Like you said, they're self-contained stories. Yep. And then you get Beyond Thunderdome, and that is like the Hollywoodized version of Mad Max. Yes, I think that might be why my dad likes it. <laughs> and good old Tina Turner as like a warlord. Yes, oh and, god, yeah, that movie's insane. And then you get uh, Fury Road, which is, uh, it's, it's sheer insanity in every sense of the word. Yep, I've only seen that once, and I still, and it was years ago, when I think it came on HBO, I didn't even see it in theaters. And to this day, I'm like, I'm good, I don't need to see that again. <laughs> My head will probably explode. <laughs> okay, I, I, we'll get more into that someday because we we have a very long conversation about uh, Fury Road. Um, but no, but getting back to Death Race two thousand is that that's the sort of stuff that like I I really liked about this was that like it. Uh, okay, I, this is one of the things I wanted to bring up that I think sure. this was about ten years ago when Rob and I were kind of what's the word uh, getting our first hit of the the most potent of potents of uh, a racer head. And there was a documentary that I found that like talked about a bunch of midnight movies. And it was like it talked about like El Topo. It talked about Night of the oh, Living Dead. It talks horror. about Rocky Horror, Eraserhead. And one thing I I didn't I, to be fair, I didn't do a ton of research on this. And I know there's a tons of books written about Roger Corman and to a lesser extent Paul Bartel. But any of your research, Rob, did you come across this ever being like a midnight movie? No, I actually didn't. Definitely not as much in the Paul Bartel kind of um set of works which is what i'm coming at this uh, my research from um this is more of i think we said before we started recording this is his most mainstream movie uh i think next week when we do eating raul that's going to be might might be that or uh scenes from the class struggle in beverly hills might be his most critically received movies mm-hmm. but this is this is definitely not i think i found anywhere that it would be like a midnight movie type of thing you're going to get more of the private parts of the eating raul of the uh, class struggle from Beverly Hills, things like that. But that's what I'm trying to think about, though. In 1975, this feels like it would have been like this is pre Eraserhead. Oh, sure. When when I, when I think about it now, I'm I'm with you. Like this is something I expect to see, like on a late at night kind of you know underground movie showing type of thing. And I think that's what it just because obviously you have what's his name, uh, David Carradine. And yep, coming off of Kung Fu, absolutely. So you do, and this is Stallone pre Rocky. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he's essentially a nobody. Pre was it even pre Rambo? When did Rambo? Oh yeah, Rambo. Yeah, pre. It had to be pre Rambo. Yeah. Yeah, it's pre Rambo. Yeah, because uh, when I when I saw Sylvester Stallone at the beginning of this movie shooting the machine gun into the crowd, I was like Rambo, and then I was like, wait. Hold on, I gotta get my timeline right. <laughs> the other thing we didn't bring this up last week during private parts. Uh, I forgot to bring it up because we were getting into such a philosophical debate over the merits of that film. Yes, is that there's a moment where Cheryl says, "Alice doesn't live here anymore." Alice, is that you, sweetie? What took you so long, Alice? I want you to help me with my hair. Alice doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> 
and as I was watching it, I go, oh, I wonder if that's a reference to the Ellen Bernstein, Martin Scorsese film. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at the dates and Private Parts came out before Alice doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, did Paul Bartell like give Scorsese the oh who I, I forget who wrote the script. I don't think Scorsese wrote the script for that. Yeah, I don't but to whoever that. whoever did the project, whoever came up with the title, did they take that? From Paul Bartel's private parts? Hey, everybody, there's a reason we're doing a whole Paul Bartel series. And even though we're figuring out these things now, there's a reason we picked them, subconsciously or not. (laughs) I think there's a genuine argument to be made that Paul Bartel is the— Like, if Rob and I ever write a book together, it's going to be Paul Bartel colon, the most influential filmmaker you've never heard of. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm on board. Uh, Can we get that— (laughs) Should I hit should I hit go on the Kickstarter now that we've announced it? Is that what we're saying? Rob is running to the trademark office to trademark that title for a book. He's running right now. He's sprinting. Um, but no, like I as I and I imagine like is even like eating Raul. Like I, as of now, out of the three Paul Bartel films I've seen, Eating Raul is still my favorite. Who knows what the the, the latter two films of the series are gonna do, considering I haven't seen them yet. I'm with but eating e- eating Raul is a fantastic movie. Yeah, because because you also have that like Psychosexual aspect of it that like really was, and I forget when when did that come out? That was what seventy. So that's the movie directly 80, 80. after this one. I think it's eighty. Yes, eighty. Okay, this is the eighty. So okay, that film was okay. The seventies were over. You were transitioning into the Reagan era. Um, all right, I have to. I've only only watched that once, so I don't want I don't want to tip my hand too far on it. Yeah, we'll get to the we'll get to the history next time for sure. Sure. Eighty two. Uh, Eighty two is I'm looking at my notes actually. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. This was, this yeah. Was, this was, yep. Well, of course, he did Cannonball after this movie, which was seventy six, but then he didn't direct anything again until Eating Raul. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah, that's okay. But getting to the movie itself though, because I think we kind of the last point we were kind of like harping on was the fact that the woman sacrifices herself for the point of like having a meaningful thing. Yeah. And I think the and then even taking away the 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 first example I gave about people wanting to give up their their body organs, I think and even though yes, at this time you had things like Beatles Mania where you have like young female fans going gaga over celebrity. Um, but it, and maybe that's what it's supposed to be. Maybe it was meant to be the idea of like sacrificing yourself. You have deeper meaning. Maybe that's what it was. And we've just become more extreme over time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. That's a good point where, you know, uh, maybe back in the seventies, you know, that, that self-sacrifice for a celebrity was much less common where today it's kind of, you know, maybe not in the real world, but just as we know it, that's been something that's all over media. Yeah. And that's where like, I think you said that was your favorite part of the film or one of your I, favorite yeah, parts. I love that scene for sure. Well, yeah, we'll talk about, you know, we do get to see a billboard in the background that says smoking is good for your health. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> can't, we can't, we, we can't do. put all of our cars at once. <laughs> we do actually see that billboard. I don't think I have anything to say past that, but I think Sylvester Stallone drives into it or something. And I was like, does that say what I think it says? Hot damn, it does. <laughs> there's there's a lot of moments in this movie like that. Like you said before, Stallone, like like they're, when they're all pulling up to the uh, uh, what these the starting line at the race, and they're all, they all get their like their what thirty seconds of being announced by the speaker, mm-hmm. and we get Stallone, like you said, he like everybody's um like cheering, and I guess whoever they were, they start cheering what Frankenstein, and he takes out like his Tommy gun and starts firing into the crowd. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really it's that it's that aspect of showmanship that this race has where he's 
He is Joe Machine Gun Viterbo. He's going to have a machine gun full of blanks to fire into the crowd. Well, that's the thing, though. Is it a gun filled with blanks? Because that, That's it, a good question, because we don't see anybody drop, which is makes me think it's blank. Like We don't see anybody in the crowd actually die. And I felt like if it was supposed to be a real gun, we would see some carnage, you know? Unless... Unless there was a shot somewhere where a bunch of people in the crowd were being massacred and they had to cut it out. Could be. Could be. Which is possible. Yeah, yeah. And that's the sort of stuff that, like, I wonder with this movie is that, like, considering how just, like, exploitative it was at the time and how schlocky, like you said, there was stuff that had to be pulled out of the film. And, yes. that's just, and that's the sort of stuff I imagine Paul Bartell would maybe find funny. The idea of like a, a celebrity firing into the crowd full of their fans mm. and that being okay. But it's not that like Roger Corman level of like just violence where you see like a bunch of God, what convicts escape through a manhole cover. And <laughs> as the one guy yeah. tries to jump in, he gets thrown up into the air. And as the other two peek out to see if the coast is clear, they get smushed in their entire, like part of their limbs go flying. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a difference between comical violence and I, I don't know. Like, it's still it's goofy, but maybe the idea of just firing into a crowd where they're sitting ducks is a different kind of violence, and like people that are getting their comeuppance. Sure, sure. I agree with you though. It is a, it is a nice little touch in this movie where it adds to that kind of you know it's it's one of those little flourishes that adds a lot to it. Like the um, uh, we get a shot which I really love. I think it's right at the beginning of the race. They're all coming out of the Lincoln Tunnel. They're all leaving New York to start racing and killing people. And we get a great shot of a street crosswalk light that says run. It doesn't say walk. It says run in all capitals. And I'm like, that's I'm like, that's awesome. You know, the race just started. If you're on the streets, you're going to get killed. So you better run. Oh, it's such a nice little touch. Yeah. Yeah. That that's there's a lot of that in this movie. There is a lot of small touches though, but there's also things like the one thing that kind of, I get, it's low budget. They didn't have the resources, but like every time they run people over, it sure. feels so staged. Yeah, I agree with you there, especially the first guy that dies, the construction worker. Sure, mm-hmm. he's jackhammer in the street. I I immediately thought it's like, okay, the whole world knows that this race is starting. Why would any construction be going on right now? But, you know, it's like he's jackhammering the street and everybody else, like, runs away. And he's just there, totally oblivious to what's about to hit him. And it's like, yeah, I, I get the stage feeling from that. But that's the thing, though. Like, we're, would audiences in 1975 see it that way? That's a good point. It might just be that's the way that gore was done type of thing. But it's I don't even know if it's that, though, because, like, think about it. Like, in 1975, people were nowhere near as inundated with media, specifically media like this, where, like, you expect, like, an entirely fleshed out world. That's where it's weird. Like, I feel the reason why this film is probably ignored nowadays, and I would imagine probably a big crux of the CinemaSins video is, is that, like, it's hokey by today's standards in those sort of aspects. Mm-hmm. But back in 75, I bet nobody questioned the fact of like, why are those people there? Yeah, I could see that for sure. Just because it was so uncommon to see this stuff that frequently. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's, and there's certain scenes too, like when we have uh, what Nero, the hero, and he sees the, uh, the family having the picnic and it's like, go for the baby. And like, clearly yes. it's a setup. If they, it, if they scatter, go for the baby and the mother. <laughs> Now here's something more your speech. Gonna be at least 200 points. 
If they scatter, go for the baby and the mother. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, why wouldn't they realize that like this was like who would be having like if these people have been racing for how many? God, months, years. Wouldn't they realize that? Like, why would anybody be out here? So, like, maybe there's something weird. Maybe there's some sort of trap element. And that's what it is. Like, this movie is not. And that's the part of this movie where it's like, okay, it was never designed to be scrutinized that sort of way. It's schlock. Schlock is meant to be like you consume it, you move on. Like, I would imagine if you asked Roger Corman in 1974 when they were making this, I would imagine as he's chomping on his cigar, he was like, "Who cares? As long as they, as long as they buy a ticket, whatever they want, they can get out of it." And that's. That's all that matters. Like yeah, Roger Corman yeah. wasn't in the business of creating classics. He was in the business of making money in a very immediate sense. Like if people like the movies, great. I would imagine he would never hold it against them. But that's the thing is that like this movie, I think that probably was the, the philosophical debate between Bartel and Corman, where as we've seen from at least three of his films so far, Bart- Bartel has something to say. Absolutely. Where Corman is more of what can we show off almost. Well, again, it's that whatever it takes to get people into the theater. That's yeah. all that matters. Like people will see this movie and be like, wow, I've never seen this before. I want to come back tomorrow night with a new group of people and experience it with them. Well, mm. Bartel probably was like, I want to say these things very, or not very, but somewhat implicitly instead of just having. Uh, Sylvester Stallone take uh, like a, a handful of pudding or whipped cream and chuck it at a government man's face. <laughs> that that's going to come back to snacks. Oh well, of course it is, Rob. Of course. Okay, we'll get to that because I, I thought it was pudding or whipped cream the first time, but I think there's a line of dialogue that says it's something very different. But we'll get there. But I see what you're saying about the you know the um, almost the kind of the goofiness of it. And something that stood out to me in a great extent uh, on this movie, both watching it twice, is that the Resistance sets up an Acme trap to get the Nazi to run off the road. Like a Wile E. Coyote trap to get her to drive off a cliff, and it works. And that's where I'm like, I'm like, this is so cheap. That's one of the things that stands out to me is like this being a Corman film. Well, I think part of it is, too, that you kind of come down to the fact that, like, this isn't meant to be reality. This is meant to be a very, like, hyper-realized yes. future. And I think that's where the, the again, I'm, I'm curious where the CinemaSins people go with this. Because this is not a movie that was ever designed to be scrutinized. It's meant to be over the top. Like, look at Frankenstein's car. Look at his, like, his get-up. Look at every, again, like we get that he's like what he's a real human being, or he's not synthetic in any way, and then we see the part where he has a, a false hand that's a hand grenade. Oh, I loved that. The grenade <laughs> in his hand is a hand <laughs> grenade. Grenade, beautiful. <laughs> but that's why I mean, though, that's a sort of like Paul Bartel. Like, so I would imagine Paul Bartel thought that was clever. It is clever. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Where, oh yeah. Where again, Corman doesn't care about that. Like as long as like you can do whatever you. I think that's probably where they initially probably got along quite well. It's like I want an explosion. What kind of explosion do you want? I don't care as long as somebody explodes. Then yes. Paul, Bar- Paul Bartel comes up with the idea of having a hand grenade in Bartel uh, and Corman's like, that's great. Go with it. And that's the sort of stuff that probably Corman loved. It was that outside the box, just like wonky way of just like doing stuff that's very clever. But I don't think it's meant to be, again, like I would imagine the CinemaSins video, they probably have at least four or five dings as to why that makes no sense. Like, oh, what happens if somebody pulls his finger? Do they explode? And it's just that sort of just like 
it's it's not that's the thing about this movie is that this movie is very deep yet it's not meant to be picked through i i agree completely with you on that and it's it's really interesting because i i was kind of almost thinking the opposite that corman would be the hand grenade guy where paul bartell wouldn't but i i think as you described it you make a good case for either way and and yeah, I don't know. That'd be that'd be amazingly interesting to discuss with you know Corman or Bartel, which we can't do. But we need a, we need a Ouija board. That's how we're gonna end this series, <laughs> folks. We're gonna buy a Ouija board and we're gonna sit around. Rob's gonna come to New York and we're gonna try to contact the spirit of Paul Bartel and ask him what the ending of Private Parts means. Was it a ripoff? Yes. Was it a ripoff of Psycho, or was it some profound, like, deep meaning of like uh, the 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 hotel being a sanctuary? And then we're going to ask him the hand grenade. Whose idea was it? Oh, oh God! I, I Those like are that two idea. questions. The uh, so we'll make it uh, we'll make it seven episodes in March, where the last one will be the Paul Bartel seance, the cinematodies, <laughs> the cinematodies seance, the seance modities. Oh. Oh, perfect. We just found the name for Cinemodities After Dark, which we've talked about before. The Seance Modities. <laughs> Where every week Rob and Zach try to contact a celebrity from the netherworld. <laughs> I love it. Uh, dude, that's my dibs on that for the restaurant. Oh, okay. Perfect. Every Friday yeah. night at the Cinemodities restaurant, we have a Seance. I think that's a, that's a nice, like, some, some restaurants have karaoke. Other places have like <laughs> what a trivia night. We have a seance. We have a seance. Jeez, if this gets popular, because I'm pretty sure the rules of the seance that everybody involved has to hold hands. We're gonna need yes. a huge fucking table if it gets popular, you know? <laughs> like I would a like banquet it. hall type of thing. <laughs> I would love that. Like pick a really like 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 a bar like in a college town. It's like Thursday night is seance night. No seance night. No sat. Now nah, people won't go for that on sat Sunday. Sunday that's a nice Sunday calm night. Su- night yeah. Sunday is seance night. I like that. And like okay, and there's like a little like uh, oh god, uh, oh god, what's it called? The uh, rewrite. Oh god, what's the bo- the board called? Where you write the sharp, not the sharpie, but the markers on dry erase board. Sure. You erase it. It's like seance Sunday. This week's celebrity we're trying to contact is. Paul Bartel. <laughs> oh man, uh, I love it. <laughs> I think okay. I know Rob and I are planning right now our um, two-year extravaganza episode. I think I want a note made in the spreadsheet that for the two years, if we are going to do say on some oddities or whatever we're calling it, from every episode where there's some. I not I would imagine every movie we discuss somebody is no longer living. Sure. But like if it's a high profile movie, like whether it be um I'm trying to think of a movie where uh, somebody has died that we talked about. I'm trying to think what's well, a movie that we talked about that like uh, somebody's died like in the production. Not during the production, but has now passed on. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Hmm. None none come to mind, but I'm sure we could find a bunch if we went back through the list. Yeah, something like that. Like uh like maybe for Book of Henry, Colin Trevorrow's sanity, something like that. Like we're trying to get in contact. <laughs> but up but up. Oh jeez. Yeah. If we if we keep putting these indeterminates in the spreadsheet, this two year bonus thing will be three hours long. <laughs> Rob's like, Zach, it's only gonna be like fifteen minutes. And it's like, yeah, right, Rob. Yeah, right. We spent three hours talking about a goddamn Disney infomercial 30-minute video. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Wishful thinking. <laughs> Rob and Zach being uh, condensed. Yes. <laughs> Get real. Um, oh, you talked to Loretta Modern from Pixel Perfect. We'll try to get yeah. in contact with her uh, Force Ghost spirit. There you go. That's a good one. And we have to make sure while that's happening, nobody's hooked up to any electrical devices. 
so no possessions <laughs> occur, of course. Good, good. And remember, you just got to put them out in the rain, and the spirit will go right through them. That's, a, that's, <laughs> a, that's, a, that's how we perform exorcism in the cinema. <laughs> we put you out in the rain. I like that phrase, the spirit goes right through them. That spirit goes right through me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a thing that happens. Like, that's just the thing about Pixel Perfect. That's a thing that happens in that movie. Oh, God, yes. As everybody knows, because they've been streaming it constantly. Yes, God bless you, Maximo. Um, yeah, so, okay, Death Race 2000 again. We keep getting off on these tangents. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think, because, I'm okay, Rob, give me another one of the moments that stood out to you. You'll give me something to bounce off of. So, so I did want to talk about, um, it, it's not the people aspect, like I mentioned with the, the fan of Frankenstein, but I did love the aspect of this movie where the government is trying to cover up the, the, uh, the death of the racers and the television hijacking by the rebels, led by, like I said before, Thomasina Paine, like the new American revolution. And the way that they decide to cover this up is with by a fantastic thing from the reporter. I think it's the reporter, it might be the president, but it says something in like, all of this hardship that has come to this year's transcontinental road race and our television and radio stations has been perpetrated by the French. There has been a lot of talk about American rebels. We have positive proof that it was none other than the treacherous French who have been sabotaging our great race, just as they and their stinking European allies have undermined and destroyed our great national economy. It is no coincidence, my dear children, that the word sabotage was invented by the French. And even later on, when there's trying to stop Frankenstein and, and Annie, because they, I think they have some idea that he's a, a, rebe uh, a rebel as well. They're like, the reporters are saying, oh, Frankenstein was just attacked by the French Air Force. And, <laughs> and I, I thought that was hilarious. I really liked that kind of just, yeah, here's a, here's a foreign thing, a foreign entity. That's our enemy. Done. That's all the government feels they need to say. And once again, I think that harps back to what we've been saying. That's almost ahead of its time because there's no explanation it's just foreign bad done and th and that's this one of the the saying again this movie's just a, a lean mean racing machine but that's the thing too is that like there is the whole element of the the government mm -hmm. and like their role in all this because obviously frankenstein being a product like like he says, like every year there's a new Frankenstein. It's just, it's an illusion. Yep. And yet you have this, the resistance trying to sit there, do something. And the government doesn't seem to take it seriously at all. Like they, they, they seem completely nonplussed about it. And that's You're one. Right. Like, they, they're more defensive about it to the viewing public than they are themselves or their own, the race where it's like, they, they think maybe through hubris or whatever, or just ignorance, that they can handle it, the government's going to succeed no matter what. They need to do everything and spend all their effort on making sure the public doesn't lose faith in it. Yeah, and that's the thing, because even at one point where we have, was it, the uh, the ending of the second leg of the race, where they're all having dinner, and you have the one government man that looks like Eric Estrada, and he's, <laughs> like, talking to them in, like, Calamity Jane, Sylvester Stallone's character, and they're like, we need protection, like, what are you doing? And they're like, and the government escorts. Got, I think Calamity Jane yeah. says we should have escorts from when Nero died. Yeah. And the government man, like in the G-Man, is essentially like, what's the big deal? 
And it's like, this is causing you problems. It's like, that's the big deal. Like, if you're yeah. going to create this entire race that's meant to kind of just like, what's the word? Like, confuse people and to distort, mm-hmm. uh, what's the word? Like you said, the opiate for the masses. Yeah, appease like, them, yeah. Yeah, it's like, what's what's the point then? And I get that's part of the joke, too, is the government just seems so misguided in what they're put, like focusing on. And I get that's part of the joke, that they care more about the illusion than what could happen if everything's surrounding the illusion. And but no, that sort of stuff is just weird because even we have the point where Frankenstein is questioned, and mm-hmm. even that kind of goes I don't want to say it goes nowhere, but like it's kind of just like, okay, can we talk to you? And he's about to lean over and bring the navigator with him, and it's like just you. And they're questioning him, and it's like, why would they question him? Like, if he is somebody that's held in such high regard, and I get it, the fact that it's just but like, why would any sort of G man? There should be a seek. Like, there should be. And I guess maybe this is the goofy like comedy that I'm expecting nowadays. But you expect those two guys to be like, "Oh my God, Mr. Frankenstein, I love you so much. I'm sorry for having to ask you these questions." It'd be like that. It'd be in today's thing. It would be Bill Hader and Chris Pratt. Those mm-hmm. those are the two mm-hmm. actors that would be cast in that part, because you need that goofy like, "Oh, I'm, I'm so like, I'm so humble by you, but I need to ask you these questions, or else they'll kill me too." That sort of stuff, and. Again, and then too, I think we've mentioned that it's just so. Um, um, but yeah, so I again, that's the sort of stuff. There is that disconnect, though. But I'm not sure if it's a disconnect on the movie's part or me just my own expectations. Yeah, I, I'm with you there because you know I didn't feel that way about that scene because that's the second pit stop, and it comes after Frankenstein took some detour um, that that led him into some problems. Or and, and I took that more as since Frankenstein is the driver for the government. They were questioning him in a negative sense because he went on a route they didn't expect. Like they think they own him, where he's of course not owned by them. David Carradine is is you know a rebel just like Annie is. But but I see what you're saying. It is it is kind of confusing in terms of well, what's the movie going for and what are we imagining from what we know now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the sort of stuff that I guess we just have to kind of we kind of just uh, that that's the movie and there's really yeah yeah. <laughs> There's no arguing with it. You can't argue with a movie that's almost 50 years old. Yeah, we're thinking. I probably we're Roger Corman would say we're thinking too hard. Violence, violence, violence. America needs violence. <laughs> that's another aspect too. Like I get it. Obviously, the 60s and 70s were a tumultuous time in this country. But you just wonder. It's like what was what was the current climate in that mm-hmm. when they were making this? Yeah, yeah. That that'd be an interesting kind of retrospective if we could ever get a handle on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know, maybe we should read a book on 1974's uh, Hollywood culture. <laughs> oh, geez, more research? <laughs> more research, Rob. Paul, more Paul Bartel research. Okay, okay, you're selling it correctly. There you go, see, you got to phrase it just right. Yes, so we do have to talk about Euthanasia Day. Oh, yeah. Because this this was really where, you know, as I was watching the movie the first time, I got what they were setting up, you know, we get the little bit of violence, um with Sylvester Stallone running over the construction worker or giving them the, the Bowie knife in the crotch on the front of, front of his car. And that kind of threw me off. I was like, oh, okay, violence, here we go. It cuts from that to the scoring system, and I'm like, they're incentivizing older and younger people being killed, not to say anybody being killed. And I started to get into it, but I definitely was shocked, in, in a good movie way, that we get you know a scene of nurses wheeling not only people in wheelchairs, but people in hospital beds out into the middle of the road. We get a great establishing shot of a bunch of people just in wheelchairs and hospital beds out in the road from the distance. 
And Annie's like, what are they doing? And Frankenstein goes, it's euthanasia day at the geriatrics hospital. This is how I'm going to rack up points or how they want me to rack up points or something. What is that? Euthanasia day at the geriatrics hospital. They do it every year. Here he comes! He's coming! And at that moment, I had to take a pause and I had to go, okay, I might <laughs> love this movie. Because even though we are used to, as we've been saying, gratuitous violence and just nonstop, you know, bloodshed and stuff like that, and it's almost become commonplace, this is something that I'm a little, I'm kind of thinking, like, would this be allowed today, you know? Because it, it really is, you know, euthanasia. And I, I'm sure you noticed, Zach, but we get in the shots of the hospital, it is called Mercy Hospital. Yeah. And I can only get the sense that it's like, the people go to this hospital so they can be killed in this death race. And and I really like how far that pushes the envelope to that satirical sense. And I, I, I thought it was awesome, not only that we get that set up, but we get the great kind of reversal where Frankenstein drives his car through all the nurses and we get great thumping sound effects with them flying up in the air behind the bushes. We can't really see them getting hit in great kind of, you know, cheap Corman fashion. I loved everything about this scene. Well, yeah, and that's, and again, it's the subversion of expectations. It's the idea like, oh boy, we're going to have a bunch of uh, people run over, a bunch of elderly, basically people that are incapable of helping themselves. And you have that great thing where he goes and it's not just the, the clever gag of it. Like, okay, people are expecting people to like, Oh, what's the word? Oh God, uh, helpless people to be injured. Yeah. Then you have it to people that are putting them in harm's way, and then you have it also is character development, alluding to who, that Frankenstein isn't the monster. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's clever. It's it's a clever sequence, and it checks off all the boxes. This is one of those moments where the movie is firing on all cylinders, and it's infinitely more clever than it probably deserves to be. Yep. And and even you know, in the context of the movie, it gets followed up like I think most, if not all, of the the people that are killed by our drivers are followed up with a cut to the reporters to some extent. And I love after that hospital scene or euthanasia day scene, we get, you know, um, our main reporter going Frankenstein scores. He gets this many points, but it's not as big of a score as he could have gotten plowing down those elderly people. And the serious reporter is like, it just goes to show that even in this day and age, after racing so many times, Frankenstein has a sense of American humor. Frankenstein scores at last! But what kind of a score, boys and girls? Just 110 points out of a possible big 700. What do you think about that, Gracie? Well, those doctors, dear friends of mine, have been pretty smug all these years, setting up the old folks. Frankenstein must have decided it was their turn. Which only goes to show that even the fearsome Frankenstein has a 100% red-blooded American sense of humor. <laughs> and and it, it's showing off all the, like, from him and his character development to how the government and the reporters are spinning it. Like you said, firing on all cylinders. And I guess that's the best pun for a car movie, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially this one. Uh, but, yeah, because, like, even, like, the, the number system of, like, who you get points for and what... The idea that like the elderly are 100 mm -hmm. and children are what 70? 70, yep. And my thing is that like, why would the elderly be so high? Like, wouldn't they be like the easiest? Because like they're so immobile. Yeah, I yeah, I didn't understand that as as much either. But 
I don't know. Even even if you even if there is overpopulation, which I don't think this movie gets at at all, just kind of an idea of you know why would you want to kill people? Children still are the future to some extent, so it wouldn't be as incentivized. But that's never explained. That's me just thinking into it. Sure, and that's the thing that's weird about this is like there's clearly a world set up, but it is that kind of just like once you put any sort of scrutiny to it, it falls apart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially like kill uh, Joe Viterbo kills the um construction worker at the beginning he didn't finish his job they're still gonna need to get someone to go out there and jackhammer that road you know and that's not conducive to progress well yeah and even like there's like the guy putting up the banner and you get that and i get it the guy putting up the banner gets it because it's a frankenstein banner but it's like mm-hmm. why are they putting up a frankenstein banner during the race yeah shouldn't that be there already like, shouldn't that been there like two days earlier considering that they're key, that the, the media is keeping such specific track of how far the racers are going yeah it's like why wouldn't you do that like i don't know the day before or the week before yeah good point i did and, i did really like when the movie takes that after, i think after one of the pit stops when frankenstein kills the um what the they call them like the archdiocese of the race or something like that Yep. And they're like, they're like, this breaks precedent. What's going to happen? And we get the cut to Sylvester Stallone going, ah, Frankenstein doesn't matter. You can't get points off religious figures. Cut <laughs> back to the reporters. Go, it's been approved. He gets points. And f- right immediately back to Sylvester Stallone. God damn Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that like Stallone's giving the best performance in this movie because he's just. Like he is chewing the scenery royally. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. He's he's awesome. Seeing him, seeing him as young I, as I've seen him in a long time is in this movie, and not just being the muscle bound jerk. Like sure, he's a jerk, but you know he's wearing that suit like a, like a gangster suit the whole time. Not seeing him in like you know gritting his teeth and like Rambo style. It's it's refreshing almost for Sylvester Stallone. I kind of wonder what sort of career was Stallone had if he wasn't like. If Rocky didn't happen, he wasn't mm-hmm. like like the the brute with a brain. Instead, he was just like a character actor like this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. You think he would have went the Frank Stallone route? Unknown? Well, no, Frank Stallone is kind of a product of Sylvester Stallone, of course. Sure. But maybe he would have just been kind of an unknown. Maybe he wouldn't have well, ever popped I off. I don't know. I don't, I don't mean unknown. I mean like a character. I like. I, I, in this movie, he's the one who stands out. Like, David Carradine's oh, yeah. just, I don't want to say sleepwalking through this, but he's just doing his stoic routine. Mm-hmm. And, and he asks, like, what's his name? Mary Warnoff. She has her moments, too. But it's it's Stallone. Yep. And Machine Gun Joe that is, is the star of the show. And that's why I wonder, like, Stallone as a character actor, is like, he's not the focus. He's more of this, not to say he doesn't get tied up, but he's like one of those actors that, like, you would see in a bunch of places, but he's not he's not the marquee name. Like what? What was his career would have looked like if he didn't like have Rocky? He became this like '80s superstar. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a really interesting question for sure. But yes, that's a yeah, that's a conversation for another day. When we eventually yeah. do the, uh, I don't know, what's 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 a, what's a Stallone movie that's really weird? Oh God, I don't. Uh, the one he did with the with the um, with Sophia from the Golden Girls, wasn't it like? Oh stop really? Or my, oh. Stop or my mom will shoot. Isn't that what it's called? Yes, yes. That yes. yeah, that seems like a cinemodities slam dunk discussion. Because <laughs> we get Golden Girls aspect and Stallone in a weird role. <laughs> yeah, that, there you go. You figured it out. Um, okay, the one thing I do want to bring up before I forget, and this is the thing. I'm so okay. I'm not sure if Rob's gonna bring it up. I'm gonna drop it now. Sure. On the sure. other podcast I listened to, they did the oh, math. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not gonna bore people with the exact numbers. 
but they did the math on like how long it would take, like how many miles it is from New York to Los, wherever the finish line of the race is. Mm-hmm. And they, they figured out how many miles it was. And they did, they divided it by 200 miles per hour and they did the math. And based on whatever it was, it would only take like a quarter of the amount of the time that the race <laughs> takes. Okay. And so the question becomes, what are the drivers doing during that other 75% of the time when they're not driving? <laughs> Because they say in the movie you ha- they're going 200 miles per hour. Yep, yep. So I wonder, did you pick up on that? The fact that like like none of the math, like, and I get it, scrutinizing it is the wrong thing to do with this movie. But the fact that like none of the math adds up, but at the same time, that's a good that's a good question to bring up. I actually I didn't think about that. I think because I was distracted by the fact of that this transcontinental road race slash death race seems to follow Quidditch rules. <laughs> like, like, does it matter how many people you kill or if you win the race? Like, is winning the race like 500 points, but if the match lasts a year and you get enough fucking balls in the hoop and kill people, like, you could still win? That's what I was more confused by. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that aspect where they're like, oh, Machine Gun Joe can come in second and still win the race. And it's like because of how many points he's accumulated. Yeah. It's like, like what? Like there's like like that's the thing about this movie. There's clearly rules, but they're so just undefined. It's yes. like what is I, happening? I think that threw me off at the first time I watched it, especially because it's like, this is a race. Everybody's saying it's a race. They gotta get from New York to Los Angeles. These pit stop, it's a race. And then we get points introduced. And I'm like, wait. So like why? What's the point of the points, you know? Or or does it both matter? And that's that's what got me thinking a little more. But that's interesting, the whole math of it for sure. And then them taking different routes and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But that's uh that that was one thing I, I didn't pick up on until they brought up though. But it's it's interesting, the idea. Um and then one thing we kind a couple of more things I just want to point out and I'll let Rob go on his tear is you have the relationship between the drivers and the navigators. Yes, the the, uh, the intimacy for the people as well that we were talking yes. about. Yes, yeah, yes, and it looks like you have like if you become a navigator, you have to have that level of like sexual relationship with the driver. Seems like it. And I wonder, considering that we got private parts with Paul Bartel, but Roger Corman loves his TNA. Mm. Whose idea was that? Oh, that's uh, oh, that's a good question. Maybe a blend of both, or maybe more Corman to have that sexual aspect because we don't really have have it anywhere else in the movie, you know? Because the only time we see people have sex is uh, Frankenstein Annie, right? Yeah, after the after they've both kind of realized that you know she's realized Frankenstein isn't terrible, and he realized she's not some agent of the government type of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's like, okay, like it's a dynamic there. Cause even when a uh, calamity Jane's navigator gets run over and she like freaks out and she's like, I'm not going to let you do that. But then when, like you said, when the other one gets what dries off the cliff, mm. she, she's actually remorseful. She's like, she's she wasn't some second rate, like driver. It's like, if anybody could pick off my navigator, it was her. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like, you do have these interesting dynamics, but it feels like. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like there's another, like, I probably, again, 80 minutes long. Like, that is short. Yeah. It feels like there's more of a movie here that we're missing. And even at the beginning, it seems like uh, when we're all our kind of races are lining up, you know, Calamity Jane comes out, and then um, Matilda the Hun, the Nazi, comes out, and they play it almost that, like, Calamity Jane used to be in a relationship with 
Herman the German, Matilda's navigator, because she's talking about his his buzz bomb and he looks down at his penis and everything. And it's <laughs> and it, I'm like I'm like what is going on? I love it. Don't get me wrong. That's the I think that's the level of mystery we need more in movies today. But you're right that there's something there that it, you know it, it doesn't get fleshed out in 80 minutes. I'm not saying for better or worse, but just as a fact. Well, you do have the point very on when uh, the announcer is like kind of introducing Calamity Jane, and you can tell from what he's inferring that she's a sex pot. Yes, definitely. So I don't. Again, that's one of those things where who knows that stuff, especially what we get to later on with eating Raul when it comes to Mary Wanov. It's just, it's, I don't know. Maybe, maybe again, like, she was his muse, and that's why he always made her roles sexual. Yeah, at least, it could at be. least in the two things that I've seen. Yeah, sure, sure. And I mean, Mary, I think eating Raul, this comes up, will come up a lot more, but Mary Warnov was one of um, Warhol's girls, one of his muses as well. And that's what Bartel came from, right? He came from what, yeah. Warhol's What the Factory? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and Eating Roll, I think, gets it a lot more. It's those only kind of twinges of it in this that makes us think it might have been that Roger Corman sexuality impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess the last thing I just kind of really want... Okay, two last things. Well, uh, well, I imagine Rob will get to the ending. We'll talk about the very, very ending. But during the chase where Frankenstein's being chased by... I don't even know what to call it. Is it a glider? Is it a plane? I for a low budget <laughs> film, I really couldn't figure out what it was. All I knew there was something flying over his head. Yeah, it's like a half helicopter, half plane, half UFO type of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's some sort of just flying object, and I'm like, what is going on? And I love the fact that it's clearly trying to like dive bomb him a couple of times, yeah. and we never see bombs. We just see the ground exploding. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. But um, yeah, and the very last I, thing for the I ending, also I'll love that that scene because I, I I was laughing hysterically because we get that you know Frankenstein and Annie are getting near the finish line. We know uh, I think I think at that point we know Frankenstein's plan with the hand grenade, and the the weird flying thing comes up, and somehow it's able to patch a transmission through to Frankenstein's car, and oh, the yeah. person flying the flying machine goes Frankenstein. Pull over. We need to talk to you. And I'm like, you're already talking to him. <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm like, I know you want him to stop, but that's not how to get him to stop. <laughs> yeah, there's there, there's a lot of inconsistencies here. That just yeah, it wasn't it's all in, in good fun for sure. Like we said, it's it's not meant to be scrutinized. Definitely. Yeah. All right, Rob. I'll save my last thing for the very end. So, uh, what else do you want to highlight about this film? Okay, I have to highlight our first pit stop. The massage scene. Because everybody, all the drivers and their navigators are lined up. Like Zach said, it's very much akin to that that's my boy um non-brothel scene. What what is it? The uh the Hedema spa yes, in that spa, yeah. E-time spa, yep. And um we get them all lined up. The TV crew is there, they're interviewing, you know, they're trying to dig up the drama for the TV, whatnot. Um, I really like the fact that. All the men are getting massages by women. All the women are getting massages yep. by, like, buff dudes. <laughs> but something that really stood out to me is that Frankenstein comes in, still in his gimp with a cape costume, <laughs> and he sees Sylvester Stallone talking to his navigator. But he doesn't get close enough to know what they're talking about. He just sees that, you know, he's talking to her, and it might be bad for his his mission that we don't really know yet. So he goes over to, I think her name's Myra, Joe's uh, Sylvester Stallone's navigator, and she's like, "What are you doing? Don't freak out! You're weird. You're deformed." And he's just, "Be quiet. I'm gonna feed you this. 
when he asks you what we talked about, say that I whispered sweet nothings into your ear. And then when he goes away, Joe Viterbo comes back like, what was he saying to you? And she says something like, he told me there was nothing sweet in my ear. <laughs> what do you say? No, what do you say? Nothing. Look, I'm not playing games here, Mara. I want to know what he said. He said there was nothing sweet in my ear. In my ear. Like, I don't know why that made me laugh so much, but she's she's like either so stupid or so afraid of Frankenstein that she had no idea what the hell they were doing to each other and kind of the game they were playing. And then Sylvester Stallone, or Joe Viterbo, on live TV, punches his navigator in the face. <laughs> I, love, I thought that was so comical. Well, again, I think it's just it's the exaggerated... Acting, not just the acting, because her voice is just, she's got that squeaky voice, yes. the high-pitched voice. And you do have that, just the whole thing that she's so confused about what's going on. He just comes over, Joe, because he's just so, what's the word, has his back up and give out everything, anything that has to do with Frankenstein. Oh, yeah, it's a great little moment between the characters. Yeah, and I love that there's even a payoff to that later, because I think um, we real or we reveal that Annie told in in the scene we didn't get to hear when Joe and Annie were talking. She Joe wanted to know what their route was, and she gave him a dead end. Mm-hmm. And when they go down that dead end, I think Sylvester Stallone's driving, and he's like, "This doesn't look right." And he's like, "This is not the way. You're my navigator. If this doesn't pan out, I'm really gonna hit you in that eye." And she goes, "What do you mean, really?" <laughs> <laughs> That's right! That's right! If I see you mess with Frankenstein again, I'm really gonna bust your eyes! What do you mean, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Sylvester Stallone, like you said, he's stealing the show to some extent. Absolutely. Yeah, he's like, that's the thing. He is, and obviously, I'm not saying this had any sort of meaningful impact on his career because this is probably like, what, the 30 or 40th thing he'd ever be recognized (laughs) for over everything else he's done in his life. But no, he really is. He's the standout here. He he's after you watch this, you can't help but realize, like, okay, this guy's gonna make a career of himself one day. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Even in, also in the massage scene, when we get uh, Calamity Jane and Matilda the Hun, they're fighting with each other after drama's been stirred up. Matilda the Hun, the Nazi driver, makes a final solution joke. You know, they're they're coming <laughs> at it from all angles. She says something. She's like, she's like, after this year's race, you know, it'll be the final solution. Or she's like, I'll get rid of you, Calamity Jane. It'll be the final solution for your car or something like that and i'm just like i'm like perfect this is oh yeah well, what's coming to me is the final solution to the cowgirl problem i didn't know i needed this <laughs> <laughs> i think that's the best way to describe this movie i didn't think i i didn't think i needed this but here we are yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> Yeah, it's good fun. I think I think it, it comes across what we're saying, but if you've never seen this, you know, search it out. It's it's a it's it's a good watch, especially at 80 minutes, you know? Oh yeah. Don't sit the, the through the drudgery the what is it? 150 for uh Mortal Engines. Oh, my save Jesus. save your time and watch oh, something a Jesus. lot better. <laughs> Doctor Sleep. Oh yeah, well yeah, that yeah. Yeah, oh god. I want the record. I was pushing that out of my brain. <laughs> I want the record today when I was trying to rewatch it. I was going through everything because uh, Death Race, Doctor Sleep, they were very close to each other. And I almost like went near Doctor Sleep. And I'm like, ugh. I'm like, no, ugh. 
Have you have you watched the uh, no no I can't bring my, hour cut okay good. I, I, I can't bring myself <laughs> to it like I, I I am like I like hurting myself sometimes but I don't know if I can do that like I would mm-hmm. honestly like it's like kind of like hooking up a car battery to my nipples it's like you know what <laughs> I, I, I it's like at least that I can get over with sooner like, I I know there's an end to that true good true Lord. three hours <laughs> three hour uh, I really okay I, I don't know I think I told Rob this but I don't think I ever saw on the podcast it's like I'd love to do a three hour commentary. Of the that cut of Doctor Sleep, and after the first five minutes, you just hear a gunshot and a thud, and you can hear the movie playing in the background. That's it. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't think you tell me that. I thought you were going to say something like the three-hour commentary is just us talking about whatever else we can find to talk about. <laughs> yeah, anything, anything but that, folks. No, Doctor Sleep, bad, 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 bad. True, true, that. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the the other than the ending, which I know you want to get to, um, a lot of the scenes I want to talk about, or the handful of scenes that I have left, uh, relate to snacks. But I do want to point out, just like I pointed out in our Privates Parts episode, we get a cameo from Paul Bartel himself, and this one comes at the beginning of this film. He's Doctor Magritte. I would I would imagine it's pronounced. He doesn't say his name. We just get to see it on his name tag. And he's the one who introduces Frankenstein to the reporters. And I will have to put the clip in because I didn't write it down. But I love where everybody's like, Frankenstein, is this Frankenstein? Is he okay? And he's like, no need to worry, everybody. He is in suspended animation after his limb transplant. And he should wake up any moment now. And he very, like, hamily looks at his watch and Frankenstein raises at the same moment. I, I love that. I thought that was a great little cameo. There is no cause for alarm. The patient has been flown in from abroad in a state of suspended animation in order to facilitate the healing of his recent limb transplants. He should be coming around any moment now. Oh, yeah, that's... I love that he, like, in a weird way... Oh, God, I, and we'll probably have to discuss this later in the series, but, like, Paul Bartel is, like, the... I don't even know how to describe it, but, like, he's... I don't want to say off-brand Hitchcock, but like he's kind of like the he's he's the Hitchcock he's the Hitchcock of the odd, and that's kind of like what. And I don't even want to say odd because I think that's like like belittling him. I agree because you know even even in look a little bit sure not exactly Paul Bartel's not fully bald where Hitchcock you know I think was for most of his career. Um, the voices are certainly different, but I definitely mm-hmm. see some similarity in the mannerisms and stuff like that. That's exactly what I was thinking, especially with the cameo aspect in these mm-hmm. two movies, that he's kind of, you know, maybe not, you know, a discount or off-brand, but it's like it's a, a true, well-done homage to that kind of idea. Yeah, that's—and in fact, like you said, we saw him show up in private parts, and obviously Hitchcock never um, uh, never showed up in any of his like films as a major character, mm-hmm. as Martell would, though. But I like the idea of him just showing up being this kind of, like, bizarro Hitch- Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, Hitchcock, if from what I remember, they were always limited. Like, what is it—not Psycho, but maybe, like, South by Southwest, Hitchcock is just someone getting off of a bus— Hey kids, in the last bit of conversation, Rob mentions a Hitchcock movie called South by Southwest. Clearly, Rob meant to say North by Northwest, but didn't because he's a goober. Like, that's the type well, of cameo that he would do? Well, the problem was, um, um, he would do other stuff. Okay. Like, he, he had Alfred Hitchcock present, so he had to, like, people recognized him. So he couldn't because it would take people out of the movie when they mm-hmm. saw him. Gotcha. That's a good point. That's a good point. And so he had to be real. I know. I think I forget what movie. It might have been Strangers on a Train, 
where he's um getting off a bus and he has like the uh the base the giant base case and he's just like you just see him like doing that that I know in the might bur- be what i'm thinking of okay i know in the birds he's like walking a poodle outside like one of the stores that a tippy hedron's going into <laughs> oh i love the birds <laughs> birds is a weird movie man like, dude, like that's what i, I think like, everybody looks at Psycho, and I do think Psycho is one of his better films. It's not his best film, but like The Birds is weird. Like it's a oh, really yeah. weird. It, it's a weird movie. Like even you watch that, it's like it's a very unsettling film, and not even like in like the idea of like oh what would happen if like all the birds of the world like just started to attack people like mm-hmm. for no reason. It, the part that's really weird is like it's just a, it's just such an odd film. Like it feels like nobody wants to be there. There's this weird. And I know obviously Tippy Hedren had problems with him behind the scenes. Yeah, but um. Yeah, it's it's a weird movie. Like it's a really weird movie. I just I've, I I don't know how people like that. It's just it's a movie that has like a oh god like a undercurrent to it that's very off putting. I it's yeah that's a conversation for another day. So, um, but yeah, yeah. A good old good old Hitchcock. Yeah. And yes. If we if we ever get to Hitchcock, we'll certainly have to discuss High Anxiety, my favorite uh, Mel Brooks film, lampooning Hitchcock. <laughs> oh, it's great. Hey kids, a quick update. For the rest of this episode, you might notice a change in the audio quality of Zach's recording. This is because Zach had to change location from Sector G to Sector 7 of the Cinemodities restaurant during this discussion. And of course, we won't get into the entire details why Zach had to change location, but just know we work while we work. The restaurant and the podcast are equally as important. During this transition, Zach dropped his phone by accident and damaged his main recording device. He had to switch to something else to record the remainder of the Death Race 2000 discussion. So please excuse any loss in audio quality you might hear, and know the next time you come to the restaurant, you'll get nothing for free. By the ending of the film, the thing I wanted to discuss earlier was that after, like, they they kill El Presidente and they go through all that and Frankenstein's now Mr. President and we have what's her name the his navigator Annie is now what the press secretary mm-hmm. and his wife and, <laughs> and his wife <laughs> and what Thomasina Payne is the what is she now she's in charge of what breaking up the the, the secret place yeah I I can't remember what she's like the Secretary of Defense or the 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 Minister of Security. I think it is where she she has to um, dissolve the dictatorship and rebuild the state to some extent. Yeah. And then we have all the press kind of like like what's the word fawning over them gawking. We have Mm -hmm. the main the main journalist we've had so far, Junior Bruce. And he's like, what do you mean you're going to sit there like to solve the death like the races? What do you what what are we going to do? And I love the entire time, like Frankenstein's essentially like blowing him off at this point. Not really, um, (laughs) like paying attention to him. And it's like, what do you mean? That's what the people want. They want the death. No, no, that's not what they want. And then as they're getting into the car to leave Frankenstein and Annie, they like what back over him or run him over. They run him over. Yep. And, And uh, (laughs) that's how it ends. You know, is that the other reporter picks up junior Bruce's scarf and, and Annie and Frankenstein ride into the distance in a happy ending. (laughs) A happy ending to Death Race 2000. Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I hear something so like wonderfully macabre about that. Yeah, I, I really like that too, especially because I think that's a fitting end for the reporter who's been screaming. And it's in that scene, I think, when he says, violence, 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 America needs violence for him to meet his end in that same way. Mm-hmm.
yeah yeah that sort of thing is just oh it's it's beautiful oh yeah yeah death race 2000 good good stuff so there's nothing else about the movie zach i did want to hit on a few other topics um it's kind of tangential to this movie um i already mentioned the bucket had one that one's out of the way uh cinema sins cinema sins oh, sucks Oh boy. <laughs> I I really I've seen unfortunately I've seen like a lot of CinemaSins videos and I have kind of grown to me like watching them as like almost debate practice because I think every single thing they say I disagree with and the thing that makes me upset the most about them is that sins aren't actual problems with the movie if the I don't even know the guy's name or the people that run it I'm not even that well versed but it's like any time they have a comment on a movie, it counts as a sin. And that really bothers me. Like, they'll just be like, oh, this is an interesting aspect of this movie. Ding! And it increases the counter. And I'm like, you didn't give an opinion. I'm like, you just said it was good. Like, why does it get a sin? I hate the fact that they are steadfastly against studio logos. That's so yeah. stupid to me. At the beginning of every episode, oh, there's a studio logo. Got a sin it. Anytime there's narration or text on a screen, they give it a sin. It's so dumb to me. But I know they are a little self-aware. They have a video, Everything Wrong With Cinema Sins, and they point a lot of this out. So I will give them some credit. But I found that in 2014, Roger Corman, or at least his account, tweeted to Cinema Sins. Oh. And, and the tweet said... Are you brave enough to count the sins of a Roger Corman film? And this was the movie they chose to respond to that tweet with. This was the video they created, a CinemaSins video for Death Race 2000. I watched it after I read this painstakingly because I don't watch CinemaSins anymore. And they send some stuff that I had problems with. They send some stuff that, you know, I didn't think of, which I thought was kind of, you know, rightfully sinned. But the thing that I was very upset about is they have one sin during the credits of this film. And it is when it says that Paul Bartell is the director. And they say in the CinemaSins video, they go, Paul Bartell directed this? Paul Bartell? Paul Bartell, the minor character from The Usual Suspects that uses the Greater New York Taxi Service? Who knew he ever did anything else? Ding! Fuck them. Fuck them for being that <laughs> stupid because everything we've said about Paul Bartel in this episode alone, as, as we will go on to say in the remainder of this series, shows that Paul Bartel should not be known as a fuck. He's a smuggler. He has like 17 frames in the usual suspects. Fuck them for not knowing about great directors. And that doesn't deserve a sin. Them being stupid is their sin, not Paul Bartel's movie sin. So fuck them. I had to bring that up to bring it to your attention, Zach, because they suck. I think we've discussed off mic that we both dislike them to some maybe different extents. But now this just this is like my last nail in the coffin for them. Like I can't stand the stuff they talk about anymore. Yeah, I haven't watched Cinema Sins in years. Like, I, I gave up on them sometime, I think, like, in 2015. So. Okay, okay. Jeez, yeah. And it's, oh, God. Okay, enough about Cinema Sins. <laughs> uh, the, the two other things, interesting things I found, uh, I didn't go searching for any clips. Maybe when we're editing this, I might do a little uh, uh, dig deeper. But apparently, as a bumper on his show, very frequently, 
Alex Jones will use the point breakdown of infants and elderly <laughs> from this movie. It's yeah, not. I can it's see him not, doing that. Yeah, it's not just Death Race. Apparently, he uses clips from a lot of dystopian things, which certainly fits his, you know, kind of narrative. I guess from the little I know about Alex Jones, the person or the show versus the meme. But uh, that's when I was looking for like, where is this film sampled and used? The the point breakdown Alex Jones uses. <laughs> I find I, I that could, comical. I could see him doing that. <laughs> I I could see him this being up his alley. Yeah, this seems the type of movie that he would latch on to. They're putting chemicals in the water to make the frogs gay, and they're making the gay frogs 200 points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That, and, I think and, Alex Jones make a great Death Race uh, character. Like, he, I think you could take him and put him into that world, and he would fit perfectly. <laughs> As a racer or a reporter? It doesn't matter. Oh, just somewhere, just somewhere in there. <laughs> make him like a travel one. Like he's, he's a reporter, but he also has to be a racer along with him so he can keep up with the action. Oh, I like that. I like that. In one of the Death Wraith sequel, prequel, who knows, one of the racers is a self-driving car, which oh, yeah. I I hate that idea. It should be replaced by Alex Jones being the car reporter. Like the, uh, you know, like in Mario Kart, you got that dude in the cloud that's like doing the, the race number or the lap number cards. Like make him that character where he's the He's the reporter who's able to be in the race and oversee it at all times. Yeah. Okay, we gotta we gotta get the rights to this, Zach. We gotta make <laughs> because even though there was a Corman produced true sequel to this film called Death Race 2050. Yes. We need Death Race like, I don't know. I don't even want to make it a, a round number. Like we need to make Death Race 4272 six or something oh, like that uh-oh. like just really go ham on the nonsense of that aspect but we get alex jones in it <laughs> <laughs> that's all that matters we, uh, death race 2069 make it make that sexual aspect of it and you got uh, starring alex <laughs> jones as frankenstein okay okay what about death race 4 2069 <laughs> <laughs> there you go you know what it just keeps printing money i can hear i can hear the cash registers right now just chinging. Roger Corman, we know you listen to this. Hit us up. <laughs> call call our one eight hundred number. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. The uh, the it. last bit, and and I I think this is very pertinently comes last because as I was writing it in my notes, I was expecting Zach to not want to discuss it. And I want to preface this by I know I'm a hundred percent in agreement with I think everybody. IMDb trivia is not very policed. People can almost put whatever they want on there. It doesn't have a lot of checks and balances. But on the IMDb trivia page for Death Race 2000, it says the following. Frankenstein's suit. Yes, the gimp the gimp suit with the cape, as I've described it. Frankenstein's suit is not made out of leather because David Carradine yeah, yep. refused to wear leather. Here's the question, and if you want to leave it alone, Zach, I totally get it, but I think at least it should be posed because it's the first thing I thought of. Knowing what we know now about Carradine, oh. Oh. do we think this is true? <laughs> <laughs> that if, is Zach, a- if, Zach's, if Zach didn't drop his phone a few minutes ago, he would have dropped his phone now to end this recording, I think. <laughs> That's that's profound, Rob. That might be the most profound question someone's ever asked about uh, the making of this film. Um, wow, that's uh, that's 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 deep, son. That's uh, that's there's a lot. That could there. be a 
That could be a bonus episode. <laughs> yeah, that could that could be. Uh, yeah, we could. Okay, put it in the spreadsheet, Rob. That's gonna be the, oh, the two. We we have to think about that. That is too hot of a potato to even touch right now. Fair, fair. It's, okay, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, you know what, Rob? I'm gonna take your question and I'm going to raise you by. Is this the film by wearing that outfit got him into all his weird like sex stuff? <laughs> Was yeah. this the catalyst for that? That's a good question because because everything I've read about Carradine and and his death, it, the people who really spoke out about kind of his sexual tendencies after his death, they knew him after this movie. So that's interesting. You're we're getting at some real real topics right now. See, folks, that, this Paul Bartel series—it's a whole new awakening for Cinematis. This is the true new year. Yeah, yeah, and it's perfect. It, it blends in with our two-year anniversary. Right on. Yes, as we enter our as we enter our third year of Cinematis, this is the new frontier. <laughs> we ask philosophical questions about whether David Carradine's weird sex habits and when they begin. We want to know when. When did he first start showing? Like at one point, like much like how I dropped my phone. Like, was he sitting there, like, one day, I don't know, like, trying to, like, put a belt on? He got confused and started putting around a certain other part of his body. <laughs> and, was, and he's like, huh, you know, and, like, maybe he tripped and I don't know. Maybe he's came to this realization. Like, think this is before the <laughs> Internet. You had to either discover these things on your own yeah. or somebody had to tell you. The and scientific how do you method this sort of popped stuff? into his mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Trial once and a, error. <laughs> once a philosopher, twice a pervert. Oh, that, oh, oh, I was not saying, when I said trial and error, I didn't mean as a joke, but that's a joke. Trial <laughs> and error. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was my, you know, it was my, it was my goddamn dad when I went to, I visited, Zach knows, years ago, I went to Bangkok, Thailand, which is where David Carradine was found dead, and my dad was the one to remind me of that. Because <laughs> my dad was like, don't get anything into too, anything too crazy over there. You know how David Carradine died. And I was like, I was like, Dad, I'm halfway around the world from you right now. You're making me think of this. <laughs> it's all fun games when someone gives you a belt in a closet of a hotel room. And, I, and it's like, I'm, the, I, I was, I'm not joking. I was the first speaker at that conference after the keynote speaker. Like, I followed someone well-known. For me, a loser grad student from Colorado, and my dad's like, I don't fucking choke yourself while spanking the monkey. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> I don't even think about this. <laughs> oh man, folks, that uh that's great. That's that's you know what profound. We are we are breaking you know we haven't done in a while, but we're breaking new ground on the Cinemodies podcast. It's been a while. The goat the goat's been in hibernation, but he came back out. He he knows. He knows when the big the big ticket items need to be discussed oh, right on well that being said enough about spanking the monkey are we ready for our questions of course we are rob so we're starting as always with cinemodities and late night and i think i was on the fence for cinemodities but i wanted to have this conversation as kind of to fill out what i was thinking because i was going either way i was kind of thinking no because this is just that common roger corman schlock I was thinking yes, because it has that Paul Bartel flair, something that made me think a lot about it. And I think after what we said, especially even though we might not have reached a definitive answer, that this movie was kind of ahead of its time in some way, I'm going to have to go with yes to Cinemodities. And Late Night, I think, goes without saying, definitely, this is good action fun. I don't think we have a lot of those in our Late Night canon. And at 80 Minutes... You tell somebody Sylvester Stallone, David Carradine, if they know him, Death Race, Infants Worth 70 Points, you got them on board for a late night movie. So I'm going yes to both. 
Yeah, I can I can get behind that. Um, yeah, Cinemati, yes. And it's weird. Like, I think it's more of a Cinemati, maybe. Ne- <sighs> I, I, I see I, what you're saying. That's what we're getting at. Like, it's, it's more. It's a different, it might be it's more a different movie weird. now. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's always been a Cinemati, but for the reasons. It, it's actually, it's, a, it's always a Cinemati, whether it be 75 or 2020. But I think the reasons as for why it's a Cinemati have changed. Hmm. Cinematities over time. Yes. <laughs> That's but for be different the retrospective. Reasons. After after we're canceled or dead or whatever, they're gonna go, you know, the book is gonna be Cinematities over time. <laughs> oh dear. Um, but yeah, um Cinemati, yes. Late night movie, I think of course there's enough in here. It's very it's a very brisk watch. There's enough weird gonzo stuff that comes out of nowhere. Uh, this this is very easily a late night movie. No, no, especially about it. just to talk to somebody about euthanasia day at the hospital. You know, that's going to get a response out of anybody, I think. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, what else could you ask for in life? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. So for snacks, my snacks started kind of strangely. The first thing I wrote under my little snacks area, my notes is what the hell are our characters eating during the pit stops? Because in the first one, when they're all at the massages, it looks like Frankenstein feeds Joe Viterbo's navigator like something like a squash blossom, but it's red and white, and it looks like almost it could be like a candy or something like that. And then when we get the second pit stop, like Zach and I talked about before with the G-Man talking about the issues with the race, Joe Viterbo has fucking white stuff all over his hands and face that looks like thin whipped cream uh, frankenstein's eating what looks like a carrot stick and, yes. and I'm, I'm so confused by it but on the second viewing i was really paying attention to that food stuff and in that scene you know sylvester stallone's got his face and hands all messy there's the a bowl of this stuff in front of him this white goop and one of the things that the g-man says to him the government official is something like, remember, we own you. We own this race. Or he says something like, like we got the, the, the control over this. And I am pretty sure, we are, of course, at a loss. I don't have subtitles for this video. But Sylvester Stallone picks up the bowl, like he with his hands, he picks up the goop, throws it in the guy's face, and he goes, well, yeah, I got the clam sauce. Hey! I told you to stop playing that song! You seem to forget, Joe, that I'm a representative of Mr. President's government. I happen to hold the power of life and death. Yeah? I happen to hold the clamp sauce. Oh! It, It sounds like he says clam sauce. So this could be a very, very thick New England clam chowder type of thing. Which would, I think, make kind of some sense for, like, an East Coast gangster to be eating. But but I think until we have further listens or I really crank it on my TV, um, I, I'm kind of at a loss. Like, maybe we should have, like, a buffet table of not only foods we can't determine what they are for our customers, but the customers can't determine what they are also. And they're like, what what is this white stuff? And it's like, oh, it might be clam sauce. It might be whipped cream. Just a... Uh, it's good enough for Sylvester Stallone. It's good enough for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I could go for that. See, you're right. Even the Frankenstein thing. He's eating, I thought maybe at one point he was eating like a slice of cantaloupe or something. Yeah, it, it's and definitely it's a, like fruit or vegetable centric, but it's not clear in the slightest. 
yeah, it's like some orange. It's it's something that's like obviously a fruit or vegetable, but it's like orange, and it's like okay. And he's like nibbling on it. Yeah, yeah, and I I didn't get it at all. I was so confused, especially the second viewing. I was really trying to pick up anything they were giving us in that scene. But the thing on the second viewing, and this is probably my my true snack for this movie, is Frankenstein gets taken away by the government people for questioning. He comes back, Annie's gone, uh, Calamity Jane's gone, and Joe Viterbo are gone. And he, the only person left at the table still eating is Myra, uh, Joe Viterbo's navigator. And Frankenstein walks up to her and says, where's Annie? And she's like, oh, she, she left, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I think I saw Joe follow her, something like that. That leads to a great fight between Carradine and Sylvester Stallone. But right before Frankenstein leaves the table, he has the line to Myra, watch out for the crepe Suzettes. Hey, did you hear the news? Mr. President said it was the French who knocked off Nero and Matilda. Watch out for the crepe Suzette. Yes, yes. So, for anyone who doesn't know, a crepe Suzette is a dessert crepe that is flambéed in uh, sugar and butter. And I think it's like, you know, an orange liqueur that they usually use to flambé it. I don't know why she needs to watch out for the crepe Suzettes. I, I have no idea. But I love this line and how inexplicable it is that we should have a, like a, a menu item that's called crepe Suzettes. That's kind of the, the big text. And in the smaller subtext that usually describes what's in the dish, it just says, watch out for them. <laughs> so it's crepe Suzettes, which is totally a real food. And anybody reading that who knows that would think it's a real food. But then the subtitle is, watch out for them. And... I don't think if it's ever asked about our wait staff, they're not going to have any idea what to tell our, our uh, customers because we don't know why you need to watch out for the crepe Suzettes. Crepe Suzettes are fine, right? What could be wrong with the crepe Suzette? I'm so confused by this. Yeah, I, I, again, there's just some really good gems of dialogue in this. They're just kind of like coming. Like they're almost like weird non sequiturs. Yeah. Watch, watch out for the crepe Suzette. And I'm like, I'm after this conversation, I'm like, was that something that like was more in the dialogue? Like maybe a previous scene set up that maybe Sylvester Stallone was trying to poison David Carradine because they're such enemies and it got cut out. And this was just a remnant of that. Is it, is it just like crazy dialogue that, you know, somebody improved? We have no idea, but, but it's fantastic. Oh, it's, it's brilliant folks. It's, it's brilliant. Watch out for those crepe Suzettes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My, is that your last snack or anything? Yeah, yeah those were so, – so this was kind of weird. This is a weird snack episode for me because I, there was food in it, but I never understood it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I'm going to basically – you know what, Rob? I'm not going to add much to it. There's one thing where I think it's Machine – machine. what's his name? Machine Gun Joe turns yeah. around to his navigator and he calls her a giant – he's like, you're cute. But you're a giant lump of potatoes. Yes. You're cute, but you're like a giant lump of potato. And she goes, What? <laughs> <laughs> That's so I think I think we should add it as a side dish in the restaurant. We have a giant lump of potatoes, and then at the end it says dot 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 what question mark. Ooh. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we mentioned it earlier. But I'm thinking of something we added to our menu, our restaurant, from Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Do you okay. remember that we have wait staff in 
full frumpy clothing in the giant martini glass causing distractions or something. Yes. What if we had another version of that, a martini glass filled with a whole bunch of potatoes? <laughs> so it would be like, it, we don't have the person in there. We don't have that sexual aspect that Cameron Diaz was going for, the distraction. We just legitimately have a giant lump of potatoes. Is there a reason why? Is there a specific reason why it's in the martini glass from Charlie Daniels? I, or just I guess let's I do was, it. I think because I was thinking the only time because because Joe Viterbo calls Myra a giant lump of potatoes, and I don't. I get. I guess we could also say maybe one of our our like co- costumes for our wait staff is just a giant lump of potatoes. But I was trying to think of like where do we have an actual person, not an animatronic, not a wait staff, like an actual person putting on a performance, and that's the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> hmm. All right, we can add that on too. As long as we, as long as we have a side dish of a giant lump of potatoes that says "what" after it, that's all that matters. True. We could we could also, if somebody orders the side dish that you described, it could be served to them in the giant martini glass, <laughs> and it's like a solid two hundred pounds of potatoes. I love the idea that that Rob is just enamored with the notion of having potatoes in a giant martini glass. I love how that's like he's like Zach. I know what you're saying. <laughs> But there needs to be a martini glass. It, it's non-negotiable. There's a martini glass somewhere in the dish. Olives and restaurant. all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I honestly, like I said at this, when I premised the whole thing, I don't know why I'm thinking of that in the martini glass. But you know, we mentioned that the whole Charlie's Angels was great. You know, me and the Chinchilla Farm and Lucy Lou and us getting fed corn dogs and. Now, now it's just what I'm thinking of, not related to this episode. <laughs> Rob, what's the you said like Lucy Lou smoking a cigarette is essentially your goddess? Like that's all you need in life something, is Lucy Lou smoking a cigarette, like that. I know in that episode, I I said that I'm 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 in love with Lucy Lou, and I, I'm pretty sure the quote from that episode is Lucy Lou. I know you've been dating that uh that Middle Eastern oil guy for a while, but you're not married, so hit me up. Do you smoke cigarettes? It's not a deal breaker. I just want to know. <laughs> oh my god Good for Lucy Lou It's not a deal breaker She doesn't have no. to smoke cigarettes She's Lucy Lou I mean come on She has a feed, feed, She has to feed us a corn dog That's what I'm looking for <laughs> That was that I, I This is a thing folks In the spreadsheet For snacks For Charlie's Angel Full Throttle It oh says god. the phrase oh my god. Lucy Lou Feeds us a corn dog. It's not for the restaurant. It's for Zach and I. Whoa, 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 whoa! Not you know what? I, I prefer if you took the Zach out of there. At least maybe you put a little well, like no, question said, mark and I, parenthetical. I'm pretty sure in the episode I said it, it is. You know, I wanted that, but I didn't want to preclude oh. you from. If you want to say no, you want to share. You want, yeah, you want to yeah. share. Because okay. we're the owners, we're the operators. I don't want you to feel left out if she's feeding me a corn dog. If you want to get fed a corn dog, nope, no problem. You got you know you own fifty. You want forty nine percent of this restaurant, <laughs> counting the mezzanine. <laughs> okay, yeah, we're way we're way off track. The restaurant's yeah, so, going great. So many everybody. references. So many references. Don't don't worry. We're getting close to the two year extravaganza. It's what I got on my mind. The year in review, but um, yeah, it's Death Race two thousand. Uh, lump of potatoes, crepe Suzettes. You got to watch out for. Great film. Check it out. I guess the only question left is, how do we end this episode, right? See, si, senor. So how, I know there's a bunch of musical cues in this, and some there's some nice stuff for you to work with. So my personal bias is Isle of the Dead by Buckethead. I thought we went, okay, fine. <laughs> fine. But no, no, I, 
Like I said, it's personal bias. I think there was actually before I realized that that song was referencing this movie. I think that we should play the terrible high school band rendition of the national anthem that we get at the beginning. or The national yeah. anthem or, or My Country Tis of Thee, whatever it is. like Because sure. it's played out of key. It's big brass. It's something we don't usually have. And it's so pronounced at the beginning of this film that that deserves the reversed outro. We already got the clip a few hours ago, a bucket head. Don't worry, Zach. It's in here. <laughs> it's in here. All right, good. As long as Rob's happy. As long as Rob gets his bucket head, that's all that matters. Yeah. So until next week when we continue our Paul Bartel series, we're going to discuss once again a notably, notably different film with Eating Raul. And I know Zach and I are both very excited to see Paul Bartel in the first movie we're discussing, not only directing, not only writing, but starring in. It's going to be good. Yeah.